I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch. What's that strange weather pattern rolling in, Aaron? How would you describe it? Foggy? Yeah, it's definitely a fog. We love to watch fog. Classic misdirection. Classic misdirection. Classic Aaron and Pete goof them around. If I were a drag queen, I would name myself Misdirection. Okay. Mm, <laughs> no, I'd probably uh, come up with something cool. Yeah, my my hmm isn't necessarily because of the concept of you being a drag queen, which I'm fully supportive of. It's that it feels like that has 100% been done probably 8,000 times. Oh, yeah. I'm a, I'm a straight cis white dude. The, yeah. There's literally no good pun I could come up with that has not been topped yeah. 100 times by the drag community. So you shouldn't try is what I'm saying. I'm like the guy who like is like in 2019 being like, my DJ name will be DJ Tanner. <laughs> that is funny. also the joke from Full House. Anyway, like the only funny joke. Oh wait, um, it came we, full circle for the uh, the reboot of the show to make fun of. This it. is like talk about the worst way to get off this episode. But yeah, the joke in the Fuller House is that Stephanie Tanner goes by DJ Tanner because uh, she is a DJ that travels around Europe. Um, but eventually, she moves back home because the family's cursed, uh, and actual DJ Tanner's uh, hu- firefighter husband died, <laughs> leaving her with three kids to raise. Why do we keep talking about so, Fuller House? I don't know. I've only seen eight episodes. I am fascinated by it. I think we need to do a special epi on the first three Fuller House episodes. God. Um, um, by the way... The- <laughs> Fuller House is probably falls under the realm of Lovecraftian horror because it whenever whenever the reboot culture gets too strong, I feel like I'm in some sort of like recursive madness where there's just like these patterns and deja vu like moments keep popping up where I'm like, mm-hmm. I feel like I've seen this before. Or like, why do these people have to be like dug up from retirement to like replay characters they retired 30 years ago when it's been done well like once? Um, yeah, it's, uh, Fuller House is especially sad, and it also is about, uh, as we've said before, although I think it keeps getting edited out of the podcast, so maybe it will again, it's like, hey, you know those adorable little kids you like said cute catchphrases? Now they just want to fuck, <laughs> um, because the whole thing is about, like, uh, yeah, people, people trying to have sex, uh, essentially. It's weird. It's a weird show. Uh, we should talk more about it all the time. But anyway, uh... Peter, we're in our uh, fourth week. Speaking of making uh, love. Craft. Uh, and crafts. There's crafts. I'm sure they do crafts on the show. Um, we're we're on a uh, fourth week of the summer of Lovecraft. And we're getting to our first and only movie that is not a straight adaptation of one of Lovecraft's stories. Instead, it is the other one of the other famous horror writers' adaptations. Or not adaptations, but attempt to kind of do a Lovecraftian story. But backing up literally name even drops more, Lovecraft in the book. Yeah, very much so. Uh, if you don't know us, where we love to watch from a movie podcast, typically we pick a theme and do a whole month's worth of movies around that theme. If we remember, we can compare and contrast. And this time we're doing the exact same things times 2x. 
to the two, uh, to the max, uh, double, double, toil and trouble. Um, take your thing down, flip it and reverse it. But they, instead of reversing it, you double it. We're doing it for two months. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's doubling it. You could have just said double. Yeah, I think people are familiar with the concept. There's one. I'm following. Now there's two. Can you say it uh, annoyingly over the course of a minute in as many different phrases as you can? Because that's how I learn. Uh, yeah. Uh, this is, you can tell that we've had a few guests because it's really now, they're to goof them around time. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're on our fourth week, which would normally be our last week, but we're only halfway done. And as we alluded to, we are doing uh, uh, Stephen King's The Mist, uh, the adaptation by Frank Darabont from 2008. Uh, and we also read the book, so we'll talk a little bit about it. it it's actually extremely similar, except for uh, some things. I actually, so in general, I actually think the movie is uh, the story's good, but I think the movie is better on all fronts. Like it improves a lot of the book. It like it's a pretty close adaptation, so it's not like it's not like they took a shitty book and made a good movie out of it. They took a pretty good book and made an even better movie out of it. Like that's kind of the way yeah. I think about it. Yeah, the um, most significant change is the ending, which is if you've heard of The Mist uh, and you're in any way a horror fan or a movie fan um, that, that, you know, was sort of uh, paying attention around this time, the end was extremely controversial. Oh, it's been a long time. Or hated it. Or, or yeah, uh, Stephen King loved it. Um, I'm still mixed on it, uh, although Peter has a different revisionist take on what the ending means that I really like. Uh, I'm, so I'm excited to, to talk about that. And if you if you if you hadn't heard this movie in uh, 2008 when it came out and the kind of controversy, and you're thinking, "Ooh, the mist," that sounds uh, kind of cool and refreshing. I got news for you: this type of mist is not. It is full of uh, horrible Lovecraftian monsters that will drag you away and and eat you. And they have teeth everywhere, Peter. This is like if you like teeth, um, I got I can't think of a better movie, and that includes the movie Teeth. The which, movie Teeth has uh, uh, listen, it's called Teeth, but she really just has two sets of teeth, which is yes, double, which we just talked about. It's more two, than normal. Two. Yeah, yeah. It's but more like a shark has like eight sets of teeth. So right there, Jaws has more teeth. Then teeth, they should have called Jaws teeth. And they should have called teeth Vagina Jaws. <laughs> Not the Monday Mortar, quarter, Monday Mortar Quarterback. Uh, one movie from 1975 and one from 2006. But if Spielberg really had thought about it, I think he would have called it teeth. And I think if whoever directed teeth thought about it, it would have been Vagina Jaws. I'm going to be honest. I'm more scared of the teeth than the jaws in the movie Jaws. I mean, if if there's just jaws, what is he going to do? Gummy me with his gummies? He needs teeth to really, really uh, sink his teeth into me. Yeah. So I mean, speak. Uh, I think most things have jaws. Name a movie that you couldn't call Jaws. Hmm. I mean, just be something with formless blobs. Uh, but, you know, Paul Blart's a goof around guy. I, I don't know why I keep saying goof around. Can you, like, do something to shock it out of me so I stop? We're only six <laughs> minutes into this. I've said uh, it, like, so eight times. It's not just goofing. We're not just goofing. It's we're going to goof on them, the audience, and generally around. Uh, yeah, if you meet us in person, the first thing we do is we tell a bad joke. And then we circle around you, laughing. <laughs> uh, yes, the way, the way wolves surround a sheep, they do. So we uh, we did we 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 were deciding as we were kind of like looking at this month, uh, and we 
really kind of wanted to stick to Lovecraft adaptations for the most part. But it felt like, and we do, we've done some stuff. Like, if we hadn't already done In the Mouth of Madness, which we'll probably release as like a, a We Love to Watch classic uh, episode some point during uh, July and August. Like, we would have definitely done In the Mouth of Madness. I actually think from a movie perspective, In the Mouth of Madness is the best adaptation of, like, Lovecraftian stories. I think I think that uh, we'll get to it, but I think uh, In the Mouth of Madness is uh, a loving to tribute it. to Lovecraft that sort of takes a... Um, a, a homage like approach to it but without feeling like some stale fan service thing yeah um similar to that the mist is something that i, I think is a, a loving tribute to lovecraft and it, and it approaches it from a sort of fun new direction but both of them would be good entry points i think to the general genre we've talked about before how both of us bounced off of lovecraft when we were in the actual prose when we were in junior high and then we had to loop well, back or for me after college yeah, yeah. And we had to loop back around to we'd seen some of the films and been more experienced to the broader Lovecrafty culture in general. And then we could go back to the original work and get an appreciation for it. I think The Mist is a pretty good entry point because it has a lot of the classic markers of what a Lovecraftian story is, but without um, feeling like cheap a cheap fan thing, um, which a, a thing to talk about really quickly is that uh, Lovecraft passed on his ethos to his fans. He wrote thousands upon thousands of letters to fans and friends and encouraged them to continue on the ethos. And there's some guys like August Duralith that um, his their work is well recognized in that field and as adding to the mythos. But there's also countless more guys who, uh, authorized or not by Lovecraft, can tar- carry down the ethos and made it uh, kind of shitty. So, and made it basically be like, oh, well, yeah. And then uh, Cthulhu made friends with a shark and then and they made love and then like it's just not the, the, there's just a lot of um nonsense bullshit riffing on lovecraft that's been done in his name this yeah. this feels like something original and a really good entry point the best adaptation of the lovecraftian horror genre um, that's something that just pulls a lot from Lovecraft, as does The Mist. And I think, like, we talked about this a little in the intro episode that we did. That there's there's not, like, a Lovecraft story that you read and go, holy shit, I love this Lovecraft guy. Like, he's got very good stories that you can read without reading anything else and be affected by it. Uh, but it's not like even like a, a Stephen King. Like Stephen King, you could read it. You could read Pet Cemetery. You could read The Stand, and just be like, "Oh, I get like this is this is its own thing." Uh, Lovecraft and, and like and you can lo- love it. You could like it, but you will pro- you will appreciate for the most part, with the exception of probably the Dark Tower books. You can appreciate those books on their uh, at the same level whether you've read a bunch of Stephen King or not. Like. I, I don't think you like it more if you've read 10 other Stephen King books, right? Like, if you like it, you like it, no matter how many other ones you've read. I think I've said this every possible way I could. Because my point is that Lovecraft, uh, because there are all these little, like, mythos things and similar themes peeking out, and it really, without uh, uh, spending a lot of time setting up, like, the rules or the lore of the universe, it just gives this sense of the universe. 
as you get more into Lovecraft and you read more stories, all of his stories start to feel better and get more exciting because it does work more as part of this, like, as a as this concept that your mind is piecing together through all these disparate and sometimes connected or unconnected stories. So that's why, like, I do think that the best adaptations of Lovecraft aren't just adapting one of his actual stories. They are taking his themes, taking his concepts, and then uh, building off that into its own thing, which is why In the Mouth of Madness, uh, The Mist and Bloodborne are some of the best versions of Lovecraftian horror because they're not bound to just one of his stories. They can take this whole, the whole concepts and, and kind of create something. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And, and another uh, fun aspect of a guy like Stephen King who while definitely misspe- like uh, missteps in it, it, it is uh, a well-meaning liberal lefty leaning guy who like um, would never build in conscious racism to the piece or make a piece about fa- you know proposing fascist ideas uh, Stephen King's one of one of the things that people find very hokey about him or very reassuring about him is that he has uh, sort of a belief in like, that the common goodness can often rise above and that there's some sense of justice to the universe and yada yada. And the mist is interesting because um, his, his book reflects that, but this as an adaptation, it actually reflects Lovecraft more because it's a bit more, it leans into the morbid, uh, callous calculations of the universe and how sometimes it feels like the universe is purposefully playing a trick on you if it even cares about you at all. And, and whereas Stephen King's works, bar- barring Pet Cemetery, are usually fairly optimistic even when they're they're at, they're at their most tragic. Um, so yeah. so in a way, Darabont made this work more Lovecrafty. I I agree because not not just by its bleaker ending. But um, it makes it makes so David of the book is clearly like, for the most part, a good guy trying to do the right thing and making somewhat smart decisions, even though he's dumb to the overall situation. Like nobody knows actually what's happening outside the store, except for there's monsters. David in the movie. So I think the the most interesting interpretation of the ending, uh, not only does the movie have more Mrs. Carmody. Uh, a lot like it's Miss Carmody is a big part of the last part of the book and she kind of is growing thing. But like the movie is very much about like like she is an antagonist from the beginning. Uh, the movie itself is very much about like the rise of like anti-Islamic like like it's a 9-11 movie. It is 100 percent about the rise yeah. of like uh, Christian fundamentalism and like finding people to blame. And, I'm, and I really like that about the movie. The book has that. It's actually super interesting because the book is takes those 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 moments uh, from um, it's like a book commenting on Reagan era Reagan era religious fundamentalism, and then the movie is commenting on like Bush era like uh, religious fundamentalism. But it's still like watching it now. It feels like a commentary on like 2019 Trump's America, like 
not just religious fundamentalism, but like uh, this this like growing rise of like supremacism and uh, white supremacism and uh, and uh, uh, nationalism. But there's like this fractional conflict going on where people are are dividing into smaller subgroups and like warring warring out with each other and the pragmatic calculations you have to make when dealing with one group versus another. Yeah, so it's it's like it's it's always depressing when there's like this book that's coming on the rise of like Reagan era fundamentalism, which is like the re rise of the religious right in this country as like a political force, and then the movie is commenting on another specific rise of like right wing fundamentalism, and then now ten years later, eleven years later, it feels like the movie was made specifically commenting on twenty. Like, oh, it's so depressing how much uh, the worst parts of history just keep fucking repeating themselves. But anyways, yeah. Oh, and, um, and while we're talking about Mrs. Carmody, real quickly, I do love that the movie builds her out a little bit more and adds some more scenes with. Agree. Yeah, because uh, in the book, it seems to happen very quickly. Um, It's at the very end, essentially. Like she's there, but like, yeah, the movie is all about the build. Yeah, and 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 because of that, actually, the movie gets to go a little further with it because it laid the groundwork. The book, the book um, doesn't get to go as far with it and and still be believable because. Mrs. Carmody comes in, like you said, like kind of in the third act. So it's yeah, it's, yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry. No, no, no. Uh, and but I, but I think it's much more interesting about the movie, especially as kind of the nihilism, like this present a lot of Lovecraft stories. Is that David in the movie is very much not like you're supposed to look at David as the protagonist of the book, like a generally a good guy who's in a bad situation and makes a few mistakes, especially in the book. Like, uh, just like, uh, like, like sleeping with Laurie, which I'm so glad he doesn't like. That's a terrible scene. And the book, it has the worst. Stephen King just shouldn't be allowed to write sexy stuff or whatever he thinks is sexy. Because there is a line in the book where he says he couldn't imagine his penis being more erect. And it was like, I want to throw up. Like, yeah. Why? <laughs> why? Why would you? Why would you put this? So it's taking, sort of like it's like a well-meaning nerd who talking about his sex life in a way that you're like, did you vet this by anybody except for your wife? Are, have you had sex? <laughs> like it's like it's like you expect her. You expect him to at some point write. I grabbed Lori's breast and it felt like a bag of sand. <laughs> <laughs> I love um, Stephen King, but like. He cannot write uh, good erotica. He's just not. No. He's not good at it. He's be- he's at best when he kind of just leaves it like uh, one sort of like come online and then uh, then we went to the shed and had our moment or whatever and then he yeah. moves on from there as opposed to like scenes that are more detailed. It's always so bad. And the other thing that I I know this is a common complaint of Stephen King, but it's really bad in the mist. I didn't even write any of them down. But all his, like, made-up colloquialisms that he tries to use that, like, people would say so it doesn't, like, you know, then I guess we're, 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 uh, uh, like, just stupid shit, like, I guess if that happens, we're gassed up. It's, like, not a phrase, Stephen. Like, are people in Maine just really fucking weird? Is that why people make fun of Stephen King's colloquialisms, but in Maine he's, like, worshipped? Like, are people in Maine just fucking odd? I feel like it's he writes so many characters that it's his way of like, this isn't Stephen King writing. This is how this guy talks. But like when you're trying to invent how different people talk, it's difficult. And so he comes up with these fucking dumb phrases that no one says. And it like really is uh, 
sometimes a frustration. Also, this uh, is when he was drinking still, so uh, drinking and doing cocaine still, maybe. I'm not sure if he, I'm not sure how the, when those addictions actually terminated. So he he uh, he might cocaine have, people ju- make up yeah phrases. <laughs> Get up the jet. <laughs> He very well might have just been like, well, this sounds really good to my totally plastered brain. Yeah, uh, that, that definitely could be probably the sex talk, too. Uh, what's better than being erect? Not being able to get more erect without his Ugh. penis bursting. Oh, uh, yeah, that's the ticket. Um, uh, but the the point is, is that like in the movie, David is actually like, while not evil, like. Um, like Miss Carmody, like I think the movie indicts David quite a bit for his like inaction, and then when he makes an inaction, doing it without like foresight and thought, and like you know he is like he is almost acting on instinct without putting thought into it, and as such, he is also causing his own uh, destruction. We'll talk about that, but I like I really think the movie has a pretty bleak. A view of all humanity, even David. Uh, and uh, sometimes watching a movie like that right now, I, I'm like, yeah, no, this is this is probably about it. Like, <laughs> Trump's, we're three years into Trump's America. I watch this right now and I go, yeah, yeah, this all, uh, this all seems about right. <laughs> um, like, it, it is, it definitely feels like a movie of, of right now. And the nihilism definitely helps me lean into my worst thoughts and my instincts because it does does feel like yeah even the good guys suck like i I don't know yeah it's like uh, when you're watching the film you're following david mostly because he's 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 largely pragmatic he doesn't get caught up in a lot of pointless bullshit you know he's right so there's a bunch of um, there's a bunch of moments where uh, people they're called the flat Earth Society in the book, but it's basically like a bunch of people are denying that there's even monsters in the mist, and you know he's right because you just watched a monster tear a fucking bag boy apart. So yeah, like y- you follow him for that reason because you know you, uh, you know yeah. As far as you know, yes, if the, the the author is trustworthy and you can and uh, you can follow him. So yes, anybody that says that that event didn't happen, you're like, yeah, bullshit. I just read it; it did happen. <laughs> yeah, but on the flip side, he is terrible at convincing it. Like no one believes him until they like he is in a like you remove David from the plot and everyone finds out about monsters at the same time. Like literally, he was he's unable to convince people. When he when Mrs. Carmody starts her thing, her his thing is like, "Hey, I, I know you're threatening people weirdly, but don't bother me. I don't bother you. You don't bother me." Sorry, you're like create, creating a weird fundamentalism, like fascist sect. But like, I'm not bothering you. Like, he takes no action against is this, it. Is until, this movie about centrism? It is. Like, I think. Like, and then he once his own family is threatened, then he finally takes action. And his action of instead of like doing anything in the store is like, yeah, I don't know. Let's go out in the mist. And then, and then, like, and then, like, he drive. Like, I don't know. We'll just drive around until we run out of gas. And then he runs out of gas and's like, well. I got this gun. Let's like, I really think that the best interpretation of the ending is about that. David sucks just as much as Mrs. Carr. Like I, I, it is a, it is a never ending thing where his either inaction or action is like based in like cowardice or like not being able to say the right thing or only pushing far enough. Like, I, I know I'm already excited to get into it, but I do think that's a, you know, I want to take this opening time to talk a little bit about the book differences, but I think the 
the positioning of like the only two options really in this store that the movie does, which is like centerism uh, and like weak centerism, even at that, and like religious fundamentalism is like where we were as a country in when Frank Darabont was writing this in like 2006, right? Like where so, even even when our senators were voting for the war in Iraq, war in Iraq, they were voting for like. Uh, Patriot Act. Patriot Act. They were voting for like banned like the Barack Obama was in two thousand eight. He was against gay marriage, right? Like it was like, yeah, civil unions. We should give them rights, but not like equal rights. That's crazy. Um, like like they were, and I get everyone was like, well, he just had to say that politically, but sure. So he also just like David did not have the courage to like go out against the mold and he like did same thing with like passing Obamacare instead of like some truly like uh, socialized medicine or whatever scary term you know some single payer options and stuff like that so like I really think that this movie is about uh, centrism versus fundamentalism as like the only choices uh, in in like this type of like country and and both end up leading to their own disasters. Uh, because there's really not like that kind of like science-based pragmatism, like hopefully like trying to figure out how to help everybody in the store as opposed to like their own family or their own like follower. Like I- I'm excited to get into it because I really think that's the the that interpretation of the movie is what makes the ending work for me. The fact that this movie is like an open-ended allegory and and like yes, we both saw 9/11 in it, but. Like, but it's yeah, actually a post nine eleven. Like, it's a, it's a post nine eleven movie as opposed to a nine eleven movie. Yeah, and like to say, like uh, after nine eleven, we thought we were all just you know locked locked in this this room together, and sure we had plenty to eat, but we still tore each other apart. Like, yeah, that's 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 a solid allegory. But there's like there's a sort of open allegory to this, that, uh, and how people refusing to either contend with threats in front of their face because like, well, you know, it's that's that's just what they believe. Um, yeah, like, well, I, I mean, we have enough food here, but that seems to not matter because people are threatening to do human sacrifices. <laughs> So um, that all the, the sort of um, the pragmatics of survival is really what I what I want to hit on here when we in this episode. So could not agree more. So, I mean, there were, the book is less allegorical, though. It has the, the kind of moments of like a little bit. I read something with Stephen King talking about, like, you know, mirroring kind of the rise of like Reaganism style fundamentalism. And that's definitely there in Miss Carmody. And, and Stephen King has always been someone who likes putting uh, lunatic religious fundamentalism type people as like antagonists in his books because they are deserving of it. I don't know how else yeah. to put it. Like, and when he, he you know, when Trump was elected, everyone was like dead zone. Dead yeah. zone. Yeah. I mean, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's been, he's always been very suspicious of religion, especially the people that like uh, use it to wield power. So uh, it feels less like that's what the book's about. Um, I, I I don't know if the Stephen King book is about anything besides being like it's it is a novella. Uh, it's like 175 pages, but like, and I don't mean this as a criticism. Like, I just feel like it's Stephen King doing Lovecraft. I don't think it's as angry or political or allegorical as the movie. Yeah, I think I think the movie version takes a lot of the core ideas and makes them more potent. Uh, yeah, so – and the other big change – we'll get into the ending of the movie. 
But the ending of the book is different in that they we already allude to the fact they leave the store at some point. Um, that he uh, ends up going and uh, he's he's writing all of this down, like the whole story we've been reading at a, at a Hojo, Howard Johnson's. And <laughs> yes. They're, and, they're, and like they're like, I don't know if we'll we'll get out of here. Or not, but you know, we. I thought I heard something on the radio, and that gives me hope. So, uh, Stephen King's not always great with endings. I would say this is. It's fine. It's one of those like you know, figure out your own ending. What what uh, what happens? I actually think um, the biggest mistake. The one thing I can say I truly don't like about the book is I think it that frame that framing device that we figure out at the end um, holds it back because I think. Being in David's head for the whole book because it's a it's a first person book um, with David as our as our point of view protagonist was a mistake because all of his thoughts are bad and stupid and I think uh, you know like it's just not interesting it's like him like oh I didn't like the way so and so the lawyer guy looked at my wife and then he's like like it's it's. I don't think it's trying to paint him as like not a good guy. It's just like he's giving him thoughts that work better with those removed. I think it would have worked better as like a more omnipresent or uh, omnipotent, omniscient viewpoint of like a third person. Yeah, uh, Stephen King in general, I think his works are always better in third person. Um, uh, He wrote a book called called Dolores Claiborne. I don't think it's one of his more well-known ones, but I mean, fucking everything of his has been adapted. So uh, I'm sure still like millions upon millions of people are familiar with the story. But um, Dolores Claiborne is one of those books where like the storytelling between the bits of dialogue stretches is like so wonderful. But since it's told in first person, there's just this like hokiness to a lot of the, 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 the direct first person dialogue um, and like the sort of like hokey working class colloquialisms that, that pop up that like you, you called out that just I don't buy. Um, and I think he's much better in third person. I mean, it is my favorite one of his books. That's kind of a, a cliche answer, but. Um, it, but it, but uh, you know, in a contradictory way, um, my favorite sections in it are when one of the characters, there's, there's maybe, I don't know, maybe four of them in the book. Uh, one of the characters is speaking to the audience in first person about the history of dairy. It's my favorite shit in the book. So like he could nail it when he was, he was honed into the character. Um, I think writing a whole book at this length, yeah, it opens up a lot of hokiness that, that people find very easy to make fun of King, and I find very easy to make fun of King, and he's definitely still one of my favorite authors-people, most inspirational creative figures in my life. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, Stephen King has, I mean, you're right, like, he's written so much stuff, there's a lot of good stuff. It's not like everything he's written in the first person is uh, is terrible. Uh, I just think in general, like he's so much better at concepts than dialogue um, and like story ideas than dialogue that when he puts it in a first person perspective, he's giving us not just outer dialogue, but like inner monologue. And sometimes that's the worst shit. So uh, and again, that's not the case for everything. But the mist is a good example of it would it would have done a little better, I think. Like I don't think those moments add anything. I think um, he's more forgiving of himself. Um, I think he's more forgiving of himself when he's writing inner dialogue, but for um, in first person because he's like, 
Because, like, oh. yeah, well, I, yeah, this does sound stupid, but that's what the character thinks. So, I, yeah, maybe David's like, a little stupid. Maybe David thinks stupid stuff sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Stephen, like, but, but still, you're making him think stupid stuff. That is, that's like one of those arguments that you're like, all right, cool, you get a C. Like, you get a technically passing grade. I don't yeah. know what you want out of me. Uh, I mean, technically, you're right, Stephen, but you've kind of created an argument specifically designed to excuse anything you write. Really, <laughs> uh, that uh, guy was a uh, lot of a lot of pro uh, Nazi stuff in this book. Well, that's what my characters were thinking about. I don't, <laughs> I don't think about Nazi stuff, but David, the protagonist of the Mist, huge Nazi, huge, um, huge. Nazi. Huge. Um, so, uh, I think we can probably pivot to the movie. Uh, pivot. Pivot. Um, oh, one thing we should talk about, too. Uh, this uh, be- Before we actually get into the movie proper, this book uh, specifically uh, influenced maybe the most important first-person video game of all time. Uh, Half-Life. Oh yes, yes, yes. The the game Half Life and Half Life Two, which were incredible. I played both of them. Uh, very good games. Uh, but essentially, the 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 concept is admittedly stolen directly from the idea of the Arrowhead Project uh, in the book The Mist. Yes, and and briefly, can we touch on that? Uh, this, yeah, because this isn't that important. But the movie the the book and the movie are both kind of vague about what whether or not Arrowhead Project was directly responsible um, or if it's just this weird sort of folksy way that people talk about a military presence in town that they come up with all these crazy stories about what they're the, doing the up movie the is the movie is not fake yeah the, the it, book is yeah but in the in the movie, they also don't have any hard information on what actually was happening or whether or not they were responsible for it or what. But anyways, so the Project Arrowhead was originally going to be a like a very – this is extremely 1950s monster movie, which I'll get to in a minute. But um, it was originally going to be an opening scene where they show the mist being like brought through the interdimensional portal. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was going to it just expand from there. And it was going to be this big special effects piece to open up the piece, like almost almost like the beginning of Hellboy, where like that that portal gets opened and, and but maybe an inverse of the open of Hellboy where Rasputin gets sucked through that portal. And it kind of kicks off the rest of the movie. Um, the, this uh, this portal gets open and, and Frank Darabont was talking to Andre Brower, who's an actor in the movie and apparently was really helpful with the production. And he was like, just cut just don't even shoot it just cut that shit altogether. like make it makes the movie more dramatic and more compelling when it's just like a family so you know they there's a weird storm they go to the grocery store to get some supplies and then oh holy shit the whole movie is in the grocery store <laughs> yeah uh and that's why like it really does follow close but i'm glad they didn't do that but i really like my favorite part of Half-Life was that concept. Like, if you've never played the Half-Life games, it's a, especially the first one is – the second one kind of builds on it and gets a little, like, you know, normal, like, now we're just living with the aliens. <laughs> but uh, the first one is very much about how these scientists unleash a portal that brings all these weird fucking Lovecraftian-type monsters uh, into the world. And you have to go around and hit them with various uh, uh, crowbars. 
Uh, but it really is like it's even called like fucking Black Mesa, which sounds like it might as well be the name of the Arrowhead Project. And eventually you end up going to their like home planet to kill a baby. Yeah, uh, you go to you go to uh, <laughs> Zebes. Oh, it's, is it Zed? I thought it was Zebes. Maybe I'm, no, I think it's it? just Zan Axian. I re- so, but it's it's heavily borrowed. So. It was really funny, like, I, but Half Life I discovered well before I discovered the mist. So it was really funny to like. Oh, interesting! Uh, it's a reverse Inception. I thought Half Life came up with the concept, and now I'm watching the mist, and I'm like, this feels familiar. I think that really hits on all of the ways that Lovecraft has influenced the culture, even in stuff that isn't Lovecrafty. Um, where Half Life is very much about like a scientist trying to get a like nuts and bolts grasp on a situation that see that is like all chaos, and like yeah. mostly Freeman is a hero. He, he, he succeeds like he doesn't necessarily understand what he's doing at all times like he's like well I guess this I guess yeah. this will close the portal but I don't really know what this fucking alien world is but like and he's being manipulated by like forces that he doesn't quite understand and as he understands more things get worse and worse yeah and and uh, there's a question of whether or not the government agent is actually an alien agent controlling him like if it's even yeah anyways I love I do love the idea though this is the fun thing of like pulling at the tapestry of reality of like the butterfly effect but like did fucking the eight page story from beyond that lovecraft made 50 bucks on somehow accidentally invent like diegetic narrative storytelling and video games because uh the like the thing that that half-life really changed was like hey no cutscenes. like we're gonna show you everything that you need to know about the story as you're playing it right yeah. Like so, like did Frumby did did Lovecraft writing in his weird house for weird tales for fifty bucks invent that? Because that is the straight line, right? Yeah, like, and, uh, and, and, it's from like, beyond to to the mist to Half Life. And if you think about the games that led up to Half Life and what direction the many directions Half Life was going in before it became Half Life. Um, Half-Life easily could have just been another Quake-style or Doom-style just run around and shoot the shit out of people game instead of this, like, creepy horror game that was, like, ground in a sort of, um, like, yeah, like a nuts and bolts reality. Like, you have this this percentage of health and you have to go to these specific machines to recharge and you need to hit this pixel to kill a zombie. Like, it has a very precise nature to it and it's not, it's rarely rock and roll, right? Yeah. Um, it's not quakey uh, in that sense at all. And uh, yeah, like that's that sort of disempowerment is, is straight from from Lovecraft. It's, it's in a straight line. Um, it's, it's just that they might they might have gotten some of this stuff filtered through Alien or the Stuart Gordon movies or whatever. But this still it still comes from from Lovecraft's traditions. I, I think as Peter said when we were talking about this last week that we were covering it this week, he mentioned that Darabont basically got a choice by the studio. Do you want to do it in black and white or the ending? And he kept the ending. But uh, the black and white cut is really superior, uh, not just because it was his original intention, but also it makes some of this somewhat dodgy at moments CGI look incredibly realistic and part of the piece. Uh, so I watched it for the first time. I guess Peter's seen it a few times in black and white, but um, if you can get a copy of the movie, I would highly recommend searching out the director's cut, which just is code for black and white. 
Yeah, yeah, it's 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 entirely worth watching in black and white. Um, the uh, you'll notice the inky blacks and the rich colors were clearly intended to be in that format and uh, the colors of particularly the CGI uh, colors on the monsters and such um, have really not aged well Uh, but the animation of a lot of the CGI is pretty good still Peter mentioned this last week but it's not he didn't film it in black and white he lit it to be post converted into black and white. Yes. So actually the whole thing looks better because that's how it was designed. And so, yeah, highly recommended makes everything better. I'm only going to watch that version going forward. But anyways, uh, Peter, are you ready to talk more about Stephen King's Frank Darabont's HP Lovecraft's The Mist? Yeah, absolutely. Just like buzzing coming to your life. I'll float away like honey in the sun Was it right or wrong? I couldn't sing that song anyway Peter! You are! I don't know if you are, but we'll say you are. Your alternate taglines. The thing that we love doing, just every every time we do it, we just, we can't get enough of you, baby. Yes, it's true. A thousand times. <laughs> can't get enough of taglines, babe. <laughs> uh, uh, what if bugs, but like, really big bugs. Yeah, what if, what if bugs, but when you smash, they smash back. <laughs> But yeah, the, the, the movie is very much about big spooky bugs coming to get you, but it's also about uh, fractional politics in a post-9-11 world. So it's really hard to say which is more important. Probably the big bugs. Uh, yeah, well, it's actually, I think, about uh, an, an uh, force or a antagonistic like enemy. Uh, antagonism is not even a right word that is in some ways like not interacting with us in a way that we can understand, which is the Lovecraft part. But also that it's like we are defining or that by we, I mean like the people in the um, in the in the di- I keep wanting to say diner and now my brain's broken in the grocery store are defining based on their own personal prejudices because they are like uh, it's not something that they can understand. So much like um, other things that people either ref- in 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 real life, the allegory is based on things like people refuse to understand and remain blissfully ignorant. And so like they've defined like this movie's commenting on post 9-11. So it's this idea that like. We defined um, a some some um, fringe people in like a uh, terrorist group as like doing it for their religion, which is the whole religion, what their whole religion preaches. And so we defined Islam as like Islamofascism and Islamic terrorism and stuff like that. And like most people who practice Islam are just going about their day, like fucking everyone else in the world. (laughs) And like, and like are not indifferent, but like, they're not walking around going, ho, 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 I need to bomb this person. Ho, 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 now I have a machine gun. I don't know where that came from. (laughs) Uh, But like, they're just, you know, they're, they're going and eating breakfast and driving their cars and feeding their kids and stuff like that. They are, they are not sitting around thinking about what the lunatic in uh, in the grocery store, saying about how we need to stop, uh, you know, the the spread of Sharia law in America, and and that I think also like uh, is emphasized by what the bugs do. Like, yeah, sometimes the bugs 
hurt people. But like, actually, I think the bug attack is a really good example of how indifferent or like how much they like are are uh, are not interacting with humans as anything more than just other things. Right? Like they're the bugs are on the window, the creature eats them. And like when people get in their way, they're like, oh, something else to eat. Then they become a, cons- a concern to the animals, but they can get distracted by something else going on. Like they are not plotting. They don't have a purpose. They are not like a unified force sent for anything else to cause damage. Like they are just creatures existing in this world. And again, all of their motivations or reason for existence or stuff like that is wholly defined by um, by the people's prejudices or, or beliefs in the store itself. I think it's a pretty good read on it. Um, th- that actually ties really well into a Lovecraftian idea that it's not so much that there's just a, a hierarchy of monsters like, like a fucking um, – like a Dungeons and Dragons monsters book. His idea is that there's an ecosystem out there, particularly in in the Mountains of Madness. Um, they discover this this whole civilization of alien creatures who created a slave race below them, and the slave race revolted, and yada yada. And there's other alien beings out in space, and he created a sort of ecosystem. This wasn't just like evil things out to do harm to man. These Basically, the mist comes out. <laughs> There's a contained little bubble within the grocery store, and everything outside that is is it their ecosystem, and they are they're performing in their ecosystem. It's not necessarily like we're being directly targeted. Yeah, and if anything, if anything, they kind of view like the book is much more about like it. It has a uh, David kind of say maybe they smell us, uh, but I actually like the idea more that like oh, these creatures just see buildings and cars and other solid things in the way that you would see solid things. Like a creature, like a store is a big, like, structure. In the same way that, like, if a creature came out, it wouldn't be, like, running into a big fucking rock. Like, they see the rock and they go around it. But, like, they do go in when there's openings. So, say, the pharmacy next door that left its door open, that's like a cave, perfect for spiders to crawl in and make a home. Um... And it's like even the bugs getting in the floor, they just land on it like they would anything else. It's not till like one does come uh, – a predator comes in a little bit too hot that he doesn't know he's going to break glass. He probably just thinks he's snapping this off the log or anything like that. Like – so I really like the idea that like to these – to this universe of creatures that like buildings and structures and cars are just like the equivalent of like mountains and trees and pebbles and all the other things. Like why would they fucking smack into them? Why would they try to get in? Uh, that's that's not what they quite are. But anyways, I'm going to give really a 30-second plot recap. If you haven't seen The Mist, that's about uh, 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 David who is uh, – he's a, he's someone – he's a dude in Maine. There's this uh, big giant thunderstorm. He takes his kid, leaves his wife behind, goes with the lawyer next door – to uh to go get supplies because the power's out. Meanwhile, they see kind of a mist or a fog rolling over the lake, and they're like, "That's fucking weird. It shouldn't be it shouldn't be mist right now." And David's like, "Yeah, sure, whatever. Should sure. be." He's um, like, uh, so, "Yeah, I guess it's mist time. I guess uh, you uh, you you about the mist time." Miss time. Uh, but anyway, so they drive. They get to the store. Almost immediately upon getting to the store, the mist wave has kind of hit the the grocery store, including one guy who's trying to run away from it. And he gets uh, he gets 
He's like, don't go in the mist. Things are killing us. And everyone's just like, well, this is fucking weird. The mist hits the, the store. Stops. There's a lot of what's going on. Everyone kind of stays in the store. Uh, one a bagger gets killed by tentacles because David goes to check the generator. He opens it up and a giant tentacle with teeth eats them. Uh, other people are there and they're like, holy shit, we didn't know that there was you. We didn't listen to you. So then, as we mentioned, David tries to convince the rest of the store that there's monsters in the midst and people are like, you're fucking nuts. Until finally the bug scene happens where bugs start kind of hitting the the windows and stuff like that until other creatures like bird like creatures come in and break in. Mrs. Carmody is like from the beginning is like, this is a sign from God. Uh, she's like the monster. There, there are monsters. They're going to come tonight. So like some of her accidental crazy stuff ends up being right. So she starts gaining a following. Meanwhile, there's these army guys from the base and they're like, uh, two of them commit suicide, and the guy who's left, they finally kind of question are like, hey, what's going on here? Seems bad. Seems weird. And he admits that, yeah, they were doing some science experiments, and we didn't know this was going to happen. Uh, they end up kicking him out of the uh, into the mist and getting killed as punishment. Um, and also they take a little trip to the pharmacy to get supplies. David is like, we need to get the fuck out of here. Uh, maybe we just stay in our cars and we'll be good. I'm going to go to my forerunner. Miss Carmody finds out they're going to leave and they kind of have a showdown where Ollie, who's like one of the main characters and kind of keeps a level head. Uh, he works at the grocery store, shoots her. They get in their car. They leave. He first thing they try to do is find his wife. They find her uh, in a in a whole mess of spider webs, uh, and uh, they keep driving. Eventually, they run out of gas. Uh, not before they see the best creature in the movie, Peter, which I'm assuming you would agree with, which is the giant fucking tentacled Cthulhu monster that I would like a poster of. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's gorgeous to look at, and the scene is not played for, like, direct terror. It's played almost like awe terror, which is yeah. very Lovecrafty. Like, the idea, Great. like, you're, you're, you're sort of, like, fucking recognizing this thing's magnanimity before like the magnanimity is so distracting that you forget that this thing could fucking destroy you and it's done great because you see a very close-up of the leg and then you pan up to just have this like incomprehensibly huge monster but also it's still like in the mist so you don't get a clear picture which also lets your brain fill in all the details as you see tentacles waving but whatever they run out of gas uh david had brought the gun from ollie and was like, well, like, we're just going to sit here and get murdered. So he takes the gun. He shoots his kid, uh, Lori, who we kind of mentioned, who is with him, uh, who they have a very platonic relationship in the movie and uh, a huge erect penis in the book. Uh, and then this this other elderly couple that survived the trip out. Um, he kills all of them, gets out of his car, tries to shoot himself. He's out of bullets uh, and starts immediately screaming into the mist for a monster to kill him. Um uh, the monster doesn't come, even though he hears a big noise, because immediately after that, the mist clears away. The military is right there, including, like, a woman that we saw go back to get her kids in the mist that disappeared that everyone assumed was dead, is, like, rescued by the military. She's kind of giving him a look like, should have helped, should have listened to me. Uh, and the movie ends that uh, I guess the world's going to be fine. Uh, and literally seconds before rescue, David killed his uh, son and his the only remaining friends. Yeah, uh, and the ending that ending is is very complicated, and and it seems almost built for controversy. And in the original book, it just ends with Stephen King. The Hojo. 
Yeah, Stephen King just kind of says like, well, we're going to keep, we got about 90 miles worth of gas in our car left and we're just going to keep driving through the mist and, uh, you know, looking for hope. And it's it feels like such a a weak ending for a novella um, because I think novellas should have like a a central point that they get to. Um, If the whole book was like, like, okay, so at the end of the road... There's sort of a weird, uh, Cormac McCarthy is the road. There's sort of a weird, like, well, the kid's probably going to be okay. Maybe he won't be. I don't know. The kid's probably going to be okay, but the journey continues on. But the road is like this 300-page book, and it's very satisfying, and it starts with them on the road, and it ends with them still on the road. The, the idea of ending the book with, like, and we're still just on the road, just traveling, it just doesn't, it's not satisfying. I need the journey to end with the punch and the movie love it or hate it the movie ends with a big dramatic punch so actually let's let's just go ahead and start with the ending right because sure. we've already talked a little bit about it we're after the break people people will get let's, it let's do the ending um so i think the biggest criticism of it at the time that i saw it was not that it was bleak it was that it was almost laughably quick that the entire mist around him cleared and the military was there like and at the time i agreed with that criticism like give a fade out let us know time passes like an hour two hours yeah yeah, yeah. literally he is surrounded by by mist they've been driving for hours upon hours and hours and like and also a little bit of the ridiculousness like sure the military is using their flame things to kill all the spider webs and something. How are they getting the mist on? Is there like a technology that gets rid of fog and mist like almost immediately after? And um, I, I read that at the time before I sort of figured out or before I sort of came up with my own interpretation of it. Um, I read that at the time that actually they were tracking the, the mist was receding. The event was over. The hurricane had backed out of the harbor, whatever you want to call it. And they were actually just tracking the mist inward and finishing off whatever had, had, you know, been left behind. So and they were like, that there was, so they were like following the flood water as opposed to all the things behind it that had been received. Yeah. Cause there's not really like, there's not really like dusters or anything. The only part of that straight ahead interpretation of the ending I don't like is the idea that they're just moving in people immediately after. They're not like quarantining people off for like a couple days while the military moves in. Like they're mo- they're trucking people back into the danger zone um, while yeah, they're, they're still going the opposite way. Right? <laughs> like they're going the they're go they drive past him. So even if you even if you were to say. That the like they're so I even think I will say I don't think that holds water or stands up to criticism only because unless they are he is literally just in the pocket of the mist he then gets passed by all the military cars going the other way which in your theory would be heading directly into the mist as a, as opposed to away from it no um, no but that that's implying that roads run only one one direction and they only run the, the, he he was but, driving but like, on a it's road it's very hard he was to drive it's very hard to drive a draw a graph <laughs> but like that's true okay i see what you're saying he was driving right. on he was driving on a road the mist was receding 
on in a pattern inward whatever back towards the source point let's assume the project arrowhead thing is true the military opened up a dimension mist poured through monsters poured through yada yada and and um whether the military is responsible or not the mist is now receding inward back to its its central point like Maybe he was driving like parallel to the exterior of the mist, which if, if the fact that he was only like, I don't know, a mile or less away from the exterior of the mist and then pulled this, um, this, this suicide move uh, only makes the impact of that, that very straight ahead interpretation. Um, let's call it like a Twilight Zone ending. Is there, we need to we need to come up with like a better name. Is Twilight Zone ending where it's so, like an ironic twist? So I think that's so I I again the bleakness didn't bother me. I like that idea that he. But I'm saying that adds to it if if he was that like, close to the exterior of of the, the true mist, like right? he was almost he was almost out. If so, he kept driving, I, he would have like literally like ran into a Humvee. <laughs> yeah. So I I didn't like it. Like I liked the uh, I liked the idea. Of like that level of bleakness, um, and I, I I think it definitely ends with a gut punch and the kind of the irony, the Twilight Zone ending. Like I liked all that in my head canon. I have kind of just imagined. Let's pretend he sits in his car for a little bit, <laughs> like it fades out for a sec, because that that helped it work better for me. I then heard your interpretation, which I thought was very interesting. Although again. I feel like some of that doesn't hold water, but I want to talk about it until I finally settled on the way that it worked for me, which is essentially that it really is. It really is a Twilight Zone ending like that, that you are not supposed to. David represents not the protagonist, not the person who you're supposed to be rooting for, but an alternate incorrect path. In the same way that, uh, in the same way that Mrs. Uh, Carmody represents one dangerous path, that kind of centerism, that idea of like people just like doing whatever's in front of them without thinking of the right, the bigger picture, and trying to actually create like a plan and a strategy that won't cause harm to as many people, like all that kind of like inclusivity. This is a guy who takes a band of his buddies instead of actually standing up at any point during the course of the movie to like the rising religious theocratic fascism around him. And mind uh, you, they're in a fucking grocery store. Like, they, yeah, there's is, there's is, seventy people in a grocery store. It's not fucking like the <laughs> these people don't have howitzers. It's not them versus the military. Yeah, they can hold yeah. out a while. Like they're not running out of food. That's very clear in the story. Yeah. Like they're yeah. they're not running out of food. They don't resort to cannibalism at the end. Like they it's only leave been because they leave hours. because they cannot face the threat of Mrs. Carmody and her fanatical horde. Yeah, so they don't try to oppose or they kind of ha- – they do the thing that like um, people – correctly, it's like, well, once they start threatening my family, like they don't stop her from killing the guy from the military who is very, very innocent and is screaming for his life. And then they still stay for a few more hours and they're like, maybe she'll come after us. Maybe we should leave too. And like he has a son that he's kind of like been giving to other people – and not like really paying attention to while he formulate like he's like, how can we save ourselves? And so like he is like he is also a a, a character who's not to be like lauded or rooted for, but a character who is causing a different sort of destruction 
uh, to the people at the grocery store. Like, the grocery store could definitely use someone like him to stand up to Mrs. Carmody. And instead, he decides to protect his friends, uh, not make a move, and then try to, to do this plan that he thinks will keep him safe. Again, it's all about protecting himself. So then they run into obstacles on that. The first thing he does, too, is go for his wife. There's other people in the car. I get wanting to see your loved ones, but he has no plan. He's not like, how do I get gas? How are we going to keep going this? He's like, well, other people, let's go see if my wife's alive, even though that is not necessarily the best move to keep the people that even now my close circle I'm protecting. And then he just starts driving with no plan. And then the second he hits a roadblock in that, he's like, well, instead of thinking about what's next to do, how to protect people, he's like, well, I fucking give up. And I'm also choosing for people in this car that they also have to give up because I'm the person with the power. So in the same way that, like, we get frustrated at our supposedly liberal leaders who are actually not that liberal, like, right now, for example, it's like, hey, you're the one with all the fucking power. So when you go and say, yeah, we're not going to open impeachment hearings. Yeah, we'll just hope some yeah, – yeah, well, we're sorry. He, we're going to give up. Like, that's frustrating. And it's also like what can – but honestly, what can we do about it except hopefully try something else? These people are like – they don't have the power. He has the power and they kind of reluctantly agree because what else are they going to do? And so I do think it's supposed to be kind of a twilight zone of like, see, I want to underline and circle that David is not a good guy because – Again, it, that is the biggest change from the book, I feel like. Like, I think David of the book, I think it's supposed to sneak up with you that David is not a good guy. He's 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 not a good guy in a way that is more understandable and palatable and acceptable to us, but he's still not a a good guy. Like this this movie is about or this movie is about how everyone sucks for the most part. But it's not about how like um that like People are not fundamentally good. It is about that people fundamentally think they're good or want to be good despite – but not – they take in no consideration to the contrary that they might not be. <laughs> like it is this idea of I am good. I am a good person. And so every action I take therefore follows good. Or like I want to be good. So the things I do are good. It is It is filled throughout this movie from like the tentacle thing of like, yeah – um, I, this is the last thing I'll say because I know I've been talking for a while and I want to get your thoughts on this and then also go into your ending. But the other thing that really I think supports this is really earlier on when the tentacle guy gets um, – tentacle comes through and grows the grocery bag guy. Like again, David is fucking powerless to stop. The three guys were like, we're opening this gate. And he's like, well, just, just a second though. But you know, I saw some stuff and he kind of backs up and lets him do it and the kid dies. And I forget the actor's name or the character's name. Like all he needs to, all David needs to do after that kid dies is shoot that guy a look, and he's like, "Well, Mister, if you if you had explained it better, like, then I wouldn't have done it." Like, you know, he he immediately just a look, and now he's making a bunch of excuses for why what he did was actually the right thing with all the information he had, and that just feels so fucking omnipresent in our culture. And and again, that's that's how that ending works for me. It's it's not necessarily there to be subtle. It's trying to kind of shake the audience up in a way to make you understand that David is also a part of the problem. And 
I don't think I got that for a very long time. And I think there's, I, I think that's a really great point. Actually, it's something I've never thought about is that the, that scene, the first time we see a monster, usually in these movies, the first time you see a monster or these stories in general, the first time you see a monster, it's just, it's just like, uh, all right, everyone's caught up. Here's the threat of the movie. We're establishing the threat of the movie. So it functions as that, obviously. Um, but so, but it also functions, I think, after listening to you, establishing that theme that like um, sometimes dumb, pointless heroics, which I, I love that scene for many reasons. Yeah. And, and now I have a new reason to like it. One of the reasons I love that scene is because it's so realistic to me. It's not someone tripping on a branch or not running fast enough. And you're like, oh, well, Jason deserves to get you, you fucking idiot. Um, yeah. it, it's it's. A bunch of people who feel feel powerless and confused and don't have information saying, I just literally need to do something. Like, if I don't do mm-hmm. something, I have no power. And I love that. I, I love, love, love that that sort of motivation for someone getting killed. Like, because people, people go do t- – take crazy risks just to not feel anxious. Like – Yeah. And I love that scene um, and how, uh, the dynamics and how they play out and also how Norm is not scared. Norm is like, fuck you, because he's like, a yeah. 50, he's a fucking 15 year old. Like, he's a yeah. he's a 15 year old bag boy who's just like, all right, like, this is sort of my job to make sure this generator is running. But also, like, it's not like it, 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 he's doing it for him. Right. He's doing it to look cool in front of the old the older guys. Yeah, he's trying to show them that he's not afraid to do it. He makes that exact point. But I do think that that scene is kind of the key to a bunch of other scenes that repeat throughout the movie, which is like he David warns those people that if they go outside, though, that they're going to get Norm killed. Yeah. Norm gets killed. And what is the first thing without David having to say a single word to those people? What do they say? Well, you didn't tell us good. Like, you didn't warn us good enough. Like, it's not my fault for not heeding your warning. Because I'm a good guy and was trying to do what I thought was right. It's your fault for not explaining it to me in a way that would have made me heed your warning. Which is like that – that like I can't think of a better summation of like the problem with our society as a whole. It's oh, like yeah, that. Be prepared, to, be prepared to hear that in the next 10 to 20 years about global warming. Yeah. Prepare to hear that. Like, well, you guys just didn't. You guys were so smug about it. Well, yeah. Al Gore was the like we of course we weren't going to listen to Al Gore. Like that's how it always is. And like that is the movie. It is like no one can actually do wrong. Right. No one can actually look at their their actions or decisions or thought process and go, oh, okay. well, now based on this new evidence, maybe I should reevaluate my thought. That's why Myron immediately becomes uh, a member of the cult because he um, not immediately, but he soon becomes a member of the cult because he's like, fuck, um, um, I need someone to make decisions for me. And then he turns into a fanatic. Well, exactly. And it's, but Miss Carmody does the same thing, right? Because the whole time she's been preaching about this is the book of Revelation. God has personally sent this, right? The and Old Testament find, God, the God the Old of Testament the Israelites. God. We always said, and then the military guy's like, hey, this isn't like God. Like, scientists did this. And so what does she do? Does she reflect on the fact that, oh, I guess everything I've been saying, like a literal opening of the seals or whatever else has brought the book of Revelation. No, without missing a beat, she goes, see, it's the scientists. First, they bring us abortion. And like, 
it she doesn't reflect the fact that her um her beliefs this entire time have been wrong. She just takes that new information and creates a different reality that still puts her as the prophet, as the thing. And, like, that scene especially, besides reflecting on all this other stuff, like, holy cow, that is the constant, like, you know, Fox News and right-wing media. It's like, there's no evidence that they can't take and twist into whatever their agenda is anyways. And, like, that is, that is, but again, it's the first time you watch it, or I shouldn't say this, because I, I don't know the first time that you watched it or anyone else, but, like, when I first watched it, Mrs. Carmody was such, like, a clear, like, you know, religious fundamentalism is bad type figure that it was those moments in her I noticed. I didn't notice all the moments that are the same in everyone else in the movie because she's so big and you get and you say, well, she's the bad guy, so the other people are good guys. And I do think that, you know, as as I watch it more, and I, especially this time, it just is like, oh, yeah, you're right. You're just like the characters you're supposed to get distracted by her. You're supposed to look at a George W. Bush or a Donald Trump and go, yeah, he, they're the problem. If we got rid of them, the grocery store would be great. Um, without noticing that, like, hey, all these people that are keeping him in power are also, like – or not doing enough or not, you know, all these kind of things like they're also a huge part of the problem. And actually, if they change, we wouldn't have to deal with the Mrs. Carmody's of the world. And uh, I I just think that she's that, that that bigness that she brings misses that these little moments like that are repeated by almost every major character throughout the movie. The way I see it, there's three endings. Um, and they kind of blend with one another. There's a lot of good evidence for all three. The first one is a Twilight Zone ending that um, if he if he had just waited a few extra seconds, if he had gone a little further down the route, the road, uh, th- this cruel twist of fate would have not happened to him. If he had held out another hour or whatever, this cruel twist of fate would have not happened to him. Um, and which I think is how I don't know ninety percent of the people would read the ending. Uh, al- the allegory ending is next, which is that this isn't actually a story of people. People, this is a, this is an overall story of how society reacts to tragedies. It's an allegory. It's sort of like Snowpiercer. You can't spend too long thinking about the science or the mechanics of it. You're just supposed to be caught up in like who these people represent as forces. And yeah, almost uh, everyone's an archetype. Yes. Yeah. And um, it, it very much the story is, is like that and how it escalates very quickly. And people comment about how, uh, how quickly it escalates because <laughs> Stephen King is that kind of writer. Um, and in that sense, the allegorical ending is essentially the moment he gave up hope, he was punished for it. Like the moment he gave up hope, he was given exactly what, you know, he he didn't have hope anymore. And so he was rewarded with more hopelessness, like which sort of ties into a Twilight Zone ending as well. I would look at a little bit different. Like I said, my interpretation is more that like uh, a series of cowardice decisions led to the ultimate cowardice decision, which uh, backfired. Yeah. And I guess four endings. A third version is is like just viewing this as like um, a man who the audience doesn't realize is very short-sighted and we've just been tracking as a hero because he's Thomas Jane and he's got a six-pack and he's not a fucking cultist. Like, that's that's not – that shouldn't be enough for us to basically back him, which is also similar to Snowpiercer. Yeah, that's kind of my read, to be honest. Yeah, we shouldn't back – we shouldn't watch Snowpiercer – we shouldn't back Chris Evans just because he's handsome and he's Captain America, right? Um, 
So, and then I guess that fourth ending, which is my ending, which is probably the mi- very much the minority ending, is that... The I think it's less than the minority. I never heard that as an as a as a potential read. So I don't know if you came up with it yourself. I don't even remember but. if I came up with it myself or I started sharing it and then people started sharing it back to me. So I don't know. Um, the the ending is that Mrs. Carmody was in some some vague sense right. Um, whether or not she was actually getting premonitions from. God getting premonitions from these otherworldly, you know, Cthulhu beasts, uh, or, you know, or just general energies in the air. Or if she was just, she just happened to be right. She saw supernatural, a supernatural event occurring, and she said, you know, what would fix this? A sacrifice. Even with all that information just coming from the deep, dark recesses of her mind, like no, no original sourcing in prophets, prophecy, or oracleism. Um, or oracular powers, I should say, um, and that that she demands a sa- she demands sacrifices to abate the the fog, the abate the, the mist. People getting eaten by monsters doesn't count as sacrifice. Those are people that were not being. Those, those are people that are running off into the mist trying to save themselves. That doesn't that doesn't really. Yeah, they, they haven't they haven't given up anything. Which yeah, that's that's outrageous. not really how it works. Um, yeah. But that David sac- made the greatest sacrifice, which was. Um, his own son, his friends. He he gave up a bit of his humanity. Well, it's also the two people that Mrs. Carmody wanted to kill for the sacrifice, which I find interesting. Yes, uh, and and the fact like the exact that, two. Yes, exactly. He wanted. <laughs> she said, uh, "Get get the boy and get." In the movie, she even calls her a whore, right? Even yeah, the, in the that's movie, more... she can, canonically she did. Uh, Mrs. Dumfries does not sleep with David. <laughs> yeah, well, and also either way that doesn't. Yeah, but like she just is calling her a name as opposed to like I found out your secret. Yeah, 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 yeah. Barring you know me using that language, the she she's uh, Mrs. Uh, Carmody is calling those two people out for the sacrifice, and whether or not Mrs. Carmody has any actual oracular powers or not, she called it. The reason that there's a sudden recession of the mist. Uh, ties into, you know, a Twilight Zone interpretation of the ending, which is that basically the military was hanging out on the edge of the mist, shooting whatever came through, burning them, and just waiting for the mist to recede. And then David, who was inside the zone, made the sacrifice needed to close the channel, which was um, he lost his wife, so he killed the only thing left back in the world. He gave up everything he had to do this fucking awful thing that he felt was necessary. And, oh, the mist just gobbled, you know, got gobbled back up into the other dimension. So, I I like that as a it it makes it makes a sense of why the mist is gone like that, right? Like that is an interesting theory I never thought of. That actually adds like it fixes one of the biggest problems that people have with the end. Where I feel like, at least from what is shown in the movie. It breaks down a little bit is not just that the military was like, like they would have been hanging out like with these truckloads of people just in the mist. Regardless, uh, the truckloads of people thing does not make sense in any interpretation yeah, of the ending. Yeah, it was something that uh, it was something that that one of the actors recommended to Frank Darabont, and he was like, "Well, that'll add drama to the ending, but like it doesn't add any logical sense to the ending." Probably the best ending is the allegory ending because that's the only way that that literally makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> you're, I mean, you're 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 ending like. If the mist just cleared and he's alone right after he shoots them, like your ending makes or that ending makes like scarily amount of sense. Right. Um, But like it it is it is hard to to square that hole. But again, like 
I've I've had an imagined headcanon with this movie for a long time until I settled on actually uh, what I think it's actually doing that I like better. But I remember when I first heard that, uh, your version of that, I'm like, well, holy fucking shit. Uh, that never occurred to me. And I that is a very good Twilight Zone twist, right? The lunatics were right. That's like a classic. That's actually like maybe the most the the two <laughs> the two biggest Twilight Zone uh twists are the lunatics were actually right and like uh your wife is actually a monster. Like those are the two <laughs> those are the two big ones. And this one's um, got both. This one's got both. <laughs> uh, I mean the wife is a a husk for monsters, so it's not really that, but <laughs> but I do think it I think the problem with it, even let's just say, like, the there wasn't the actual logistic problems of, like, uh, a caravan full of, like, survivors in the mist right before it cleared. Uh, I do think that this movie is so angry, which Frank Darabont said at the time, like, Frank Darabont, uh, these are not like us thinking that this is about the Iraq war. Like, Frank Darabont admitted the movie is so bleak and so dark is because, like, he was so fucking angry and beside himself with the way the world was going that when he went to write it he was like fuck all of this like he was in a nihilistic mood great interviews on like the 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 dvd i had and in print like that part of it is very much like um like just his exact words not our interpretation uh and uh and so I think, like, the idea that he would have made that movie with, like, oh, you know, the horrible religious fascist, she was right. <laughs> like, that doesn't, just from even, like, a, his stated intent in making the movie doesn't stand up for much scrutiny. Yeah, but I, I think just because he was making this movie about how much he hated living with Americans doesn't necessarily mean that when he was making the ending of the movie, he was like, well, the ending of the movie has to perfectly track with what emotional and political feeling I'm feeling at the time, which also that might his I mean, we're reading into his emotions that he was just angry about the war. He might have not reading like, it. He, he, he might have said been, that he might have been literally like, saying, but we're reading into him saying that he was he was angry about the war. That doesn't necessarily mean that every action within the film was motivated by that. Fit, that's fair. That's fair. And also, the ending does jive with someone being mad about the war. Because, like, how often when you're thinking about global warming and you're like, should we all just get murdered? Is that that the solution? Is the solution not just, like, pure uh, nihilism? And that kind of jives with the the allegory ending that I I also see, the the Snowpiercer kind of thing. That, like, uh, the mist recedes because the mist doesn't actually exist. And this is an allegorical story. And the mist recedes because David lost hope. Or David gave up. Or... David fucked up. Like I, I, the, the, I could see that actually being a hopeful node on the end of a extreme. Well, not hopeful, but a a call to hope on the end of an extremely dark, cynical piece made from an angry place that actually matches the end of the book. The end of the book is like, yes, it fucking sucks to live in Reagan's America, but literally all we have is hope. I don't know if it exists or not, but our hope for that hope is all we have. (laughs) Yeah, and this is the flip side in that instead of saying hope, he gave up hope and bad things happened. Yeah, I... Neither of those endings, like, again, are satisfying to me. I, I like it as an underlining of his character as a as part of the problem uh, and also suffering consequences from terrible decisions. Um, that's like the most interesting to me. And also I think the most like resonant for, for a variety of reasons, but it is, you know, the reason why I'm glad we talked about the ending first 
uh, and also pulled in a lot of other moments from the movie is like that that really is like like I really do love this movie and part of it is because like I liked it at the time because like it felt angry at the same things that I was angry about um and even watching it now you watch it and you kind of go oh it was also angry at me probably in 2007 2008 and deservedly so like um you know i i it just has a lot to say all in a way that like um and, and like in a way that lovecraft didn't always like it's pulling in these 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 like these are literally just like insignificant specks in a grocery store right and they're they're not comprehending like this new cosmic crazy world that is and people are losing their minds and acting impulsively and not controlling the situation like but then it also has so like all that stuff's great monster design is great but then it also has this like of the time social political message that like is truly like angry and fiery and resonant and that is not lovecraft like lovecraft was was not a like fiery writer with an axe to grind and he was more like he definitely i mean he definitely had political beliefs as we've talked about but they were yeah, he just had a, like, he had a he was briefly writing a magazine called like the conservative or i forget the name yeah. of it uh but he but in his stories it's more like it's less like angry and like passionate and more like um, matter of fact racism like because those were his political beliefs as we've talked about like it's just like these people are bad because they are inferior moving on like you know like it's not like it it doesn't have I, I like maybe I'm wrong Peter but like when I read Lovecraft like I don't think of him as like someone who is a passionate writer um, I think of him as someone who is engaging with these ideas on a a, a, a at a distance, even though yeah. his stories can be emotional, the emotions are usually despair, madness, uh, you know, a lack of trust in the world. Like his his emotions are not usually um, are not usually like here. I'm going to tell fiery. You. Yeah, I mean, he did write stories, so he wrote Old Bugs, which is the, the worst short story I've ever read. That's not racist. Uh, Old Bugs is. Uh, his entire diatribe against drinking. Uh, he wrote The Street and uh, Terror at Red Hook. H- horror at yeah. Red Hook. Um, those it's, are both, it's horror at Red Hook. Those are both written from this place of like disgust at um, at political elements or just racial groups within yeah. the country but it's not written from this yeah it's not written from this place like we should go we should go gather all these people up and put them to death it's written from this place like oh can you believe the state of the world today it's it's this dispassionate this dispassionate yeah. distance i think that you're you're hitting at that like he, he frank darabont however is like uh like a hollywood liberal guy just like stephen king and in, in a lot of ways who's just like I can recognize this outright horror in front of my face and I want to say something about it. Yeah. Well, and I think he was angrier uh, than Stephen King, too, in general. Like, Stephen King is is can be an angrier writer. Much, I mean, I, like, I just feel Lovecraft is, like, whatever the opposite of that is. Like, it's, like, cold, hot, cold, hot. Like, 
if like that's the only measurement for like style of writing, uh, I would put uh, Lovecraft in the blue column, <laughs> uh, which means cold. If you've ever, if you've never used a sink or a bathroom faucet, mm-hmm. uh, and I would put, uh, I feel like I'd put Stephen King medium, but like Frank Darabont in this movie specifically, I would put fiery red. Like, I put Richard Bachman as hotter than Stephen King. Does that make Oh sense? yeah. You know what? I was just thinking, cause I was about to put him in like medium cold. And then I thought of the long walk. Which is a fucking angry and Running Man, like both yeah. of those. Those both of those are like fiery, angry protests yeah. against conservative bullshit. Yeah, yeah. So like that was what I was thinking as I was like, okay, I gotta put a medium because of the long walk, especially. But um, yeah, so Richard Bachman will put at a red, and we'll put Stephen King maybe like blue red. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Stephen King's political beliefs are like. Can you believe these dunderheads? <laughs> Once again, these fucking idiots. Like, that's Stephen. Like, yeah. it's like where Richard, I guess Richard Bachman's like, hey, they're making kids fucking walk till they die for your entertainment, you assholes. Like, yeah. That's, yeah. But did I ever, have I ever told you that The Long Walk is my favorite? That's my favorite Stephen King book. What's yours? Um, Stephen King didn't write the long walk. Um, my favorite Stephen <laughs> King book is probably. If it's not it, it would be Wizard and Glass from the Dark Tower series. It's that's like I've not done the Dark Tower. So you could almost know, just read Wizard and Glass because it's a prequel mm-hmm. to the rest of the books, but it was written, I believe, it fourth. Um, yeah, and it, it 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 was like the series took a step back, and he was like, actually, I want to explore uh, the world before I want to explore these characters before all this stuff. I want to see Roland Deschain's, uh roots and. Um, which sounds like a fucking terrible idea and usually is a terrible idea. I've always read that my... that one's considered the, that's kind of considered the best. I actually have, it's funny cause I have the first dark tower book, like literally the gunslinger or whatever, like, uh, on the, uh, end table by my bed. Like I have been meaning to start that at some point for like a couple years now, but it also then feels like a big thing that I'm undertaking. So I'm like, well, let me just read this book. First. You can also just read wizard and glass and the gunslinger. No, they Peter, work as, like, never going to, they work that. as just like individual pieces. And also the gunslinger is like 200 pages. Yeah, I know. It doesn't take up much room on my, <laughs> the <laughs> lot of the interpretations of the ending kind of blend into one another, but they all touch on different, different themes in the movie. And I do think that all of the endings come back to this anger at the world and the fact that and the fact that by sheer by sheer fucking precision, Frank Darabont made it so there is four bullets left, but five people need a bullet. Um, and it feels like you could have lined up the shot, though, for like the last person. Like I, I know, think that every time I watch the movie, but also like I put myself in the car with somebody and I'm like, can you imagine asking asking this person to put your uh child's head in front of theirs like and also the kid is asleep at the time so like that i'll, t- I'll tell you what like the one th- so i haven't watched this movie since i had kids uh that part it like i've said before like people are always asking like um oh i bet some of those like child in danger stuff uh is more affecting to you now that you have kids and my answer honestly not to be a big tough dude is is no just because like there is something about it like i mean occasionally well actually let me start that over so it's because in general like child endangerment stuff has always got me a little bit like okay i hope this kid's okay like just because 
I don't know. Like I've, I'm the oldest of a lot of kids and I've like, it's something that, that was never one of those things that I was dispassionate about to begin with. So I feel like my level of interaction with that has not changed since having my own kids. The mist on the other hand, had like the ending of that, where he has to shoot his own kid in the head bothers me in a way now that I do have my own children in a way I wasn't expecting. Yeah, and we can talk about two things here. One is that Thomas Jane, it gives a great performance. I, I don't want to hear any any word that Thomas Jane is a bad actor. Um, he nails this scene. Hey, he's Tom Jane. He's Tom Jane. He just wants his, he just wants his kids back. Just wants his kids back. He just wants his kids back. He's a great actor. He can do kind of anything. He can he can totally thread the line between pure dramatics and pure comedy. Uh, most people don't. I, I don't really like love his Punisher movie, but most people don't recognize the fact that that movie is like very funny, and he's very funny in it. Um, yeah. And, and, well, like he's fucking great in Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights and um, fucking. Uh, where's my list here? Sorry. I really like him in Thursday, which is a movie only like Aaron Eckhart and, and Tom Jane, who part this is 100 percent true. When I first saw the movie when I was in high school, I wasn't sure if it was like a twin situation, like where they were like purposely making the same actor play these two best friends. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like they look in that movie so much alike. And I also wasn't entirely sure whether uh, Tom Jane was Christopher Lambert. Uh, they do have a sort of. Um brotherly quality like uh though christopher lambert is like i think older than him by quite a bit but they have a brotherly yeah. quality and they both are in similar types of movies like tom jane has been in a lot of direct video action movies uh, yeah. not as many as christopher lambert but um but he's he's also like if, if you don't like his punisher movie that's fine I don't, I don't really like it um you should watch the punisher short he did when he was like basically like i want to keep playing this character and it was released to youtube um and it's very it's very fun it's very dark it's 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 sort of like right in the middle of that dark gritty thing taking off but it's still like fun and original in its own way uh ron perlman's in it and he's buddies with ron perlman which is actually why hellboy comics show up in in this movie um and uh he's amazing in deep blue sea as like a straight ahead action hero but like kind of wisecracking he does what chris pratt kind of wanted to do with the jurassic world movies yeah, he hasn't uh, – he's kind of had a rough, like – he's – I don't think he's been in a mainstream movie in a while. No, and he and he was really good Which on is Hung, weird. his HBO show. Oh, yeah, Hung's great. Yeah, he was really good in that. That was a show that looked terrible. It was just like, all right, Tom Jane's hot and has a big what dick. If, like, who cares? <laughs> what if a guy with a big dick became a prostitute? Oh, yeah. interesting movie. Interesting. How did that get past HBO pitching? But it, but it actually is about, like uh, – recession era bush politics which is was more interesting yeah yeah he was very good and he's really great in scott pilgrim and arrested d as like an outright comic character which i i say that i say a lot that many great dramatic actors are actually bad at comedy um like a lot like a lot of your favorite dramatic actors are terrible but if you're a good comedian that means you can do drama i'm convinced yeah, I think that's that's and so many of them want to do drama. I didn't realize he's like the main character in the Expanse, that sci-fi movie that everyone keeps telling me to watch. Or oh, the TV show, the TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't know yeah. he was like that big in it. He's he's the first listed actor. That's awesome. I need to watch that now. That's yeah. That's, apparently, that's Jeff Bezos' like favorite show. So that means that show is not, now that's on Amazon is like not going anywhere forever. 
I mean, people really like it's one of those shows like every fucking show. It's like first season. Okay. Um, but second season really picks up. But yeah, he is like the only name I recognize in the cast. Cool. That's so, another reason to check it out. And there's one in here yeah. that I don't think is like an amazing movie, but it is like a taut, fun, like lean, mean thriller, which is called Standoff. And it's literally just Tom Jane and Lawrence Fishburne in a house. Lawrence Fishburne is a hitman trying to kill a, I think it's a girl. Like she's, she's mostly a, a, a girl or a little boy. I forget. They're mostly just a package to keep safe for Tom Jane. Um, and uh, Tom Jane is like this drunk who just doesn't want this guy to come in and murder this child. And like Lawrence Fishburne and him basically perform this whole movie uh, uh, yelling at each other down a staircase. It's it's really fun. It's like a lean, mean little thriller, and it's like kind of this like thing they haven't made since the seventies. And uh, he's really he's really great in it. But you're right, like he's he's kind of been he's kind of dropped off. Um, I also think Laurie Holden too, um, who like in two thousand seven it seemed like she was everywhere because like she was in I'm in the Majestic, she was in Silent Hill, she was in like. Um, she was in the shield i think too for a little bit like i just kind of kept feeling like i was like seeing her everywhere and she also kind of like disappeared in major film roles after this movie well she did a season of walking dead which frank darabont did the first very good season of walking dead sure the first season of walking dead is really good like and he sure, shot Peter. he shot it on film like it's very gorgeous the to first look the at. first ep- the first episode is very good yeah and and uh jeffrey demon is also in this and he's uh oh, that's right she is in the walking dead yeah and jeffrey demon was in the first couple seasons of walking dead um melissa mcbride is carol who is still on walking dead like jeffrey demon or uh, uh frank darabont like uh, picked up people from the majestic from this from shawshank redemption from green mile and he just kept bringing them with him and then dumped them on walking dead and he was like hey here's like a bunch of fucking money <laughs> like here's, here's like <laughs> you're kind of set so uh we're talking about probably and then we can get to some oh can we moment. jump back to the thing you were talking about uh, dead kids Oh, uh, sure. The last thing I'll say is, like, actually the weirdest one is that uh, this movie came out in 2007, and this is the last movie that Frank Darabont has directed after literally, like, uh, I mean, he did Shawshank, Green Mile, The Majestic, which is Garbage Town, USA. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of The Green Mile, but, like, Shawshank, despite its, like, almost eye-rolling acceptance as, like, the world's favorite movie... I fucking love Shawshank. It's a great like, movie. It's, it's a great movie. Like, how can you not watch? Like, the reason it's the world's favorite movie or whatever is because, like, how every time, like, you're just so goddamn elated at the end of the movie. How can you not be? <laughs> I it's think- like, like, it's such a good movie. And I, and it, it's also one that was like, made no money in the box office. Like, it, it like it became people's favorite movie because they started watching it and it was like, oh, like this is an amazing movie. And also, like, we're not the sort of podcast that's gonna like pretend to be cool by saying we hate it. Like a lot of people I love on Twitter make a big fucking deal about hating movies like Shawshank Redemption or Dark Knight just because like the worst parts of internet fandom adore them. And it's like, no, they're actually good movies. Like some like just just because just because uh they're annoying to hear people talk about again and again does not make the movie any worse we'll see and i'm i'm old enough too that like shawshank so shawshank came out in 94 
Uh, it became like a video store hit. But like in 98 or 99, when I first saw it, like even among like video store people like that I – because I worked at a video store starting in like the end of 1999, like liking Shawshank was like cool. Like it still felt like this weird Stephen King adaptation by this director who had never done another movie starring like two people that all the fucking film nerds loved – which was like, you know, Tim Robbins and like the cat, like, and then all of a sudden, like, it was somewhere around like the fact that it was IMDb's favorite movie that everyone's like, actually, fuck it. No, you're saying Shawshank is better than fucking, I don't know, uh, 400 blows? Fuck you, Shawshank. Like, yeah. you know, like, it's, it turns, because it's been, because it's like number one. It's the sort of thing with Citizen Kane too. Like people are just like constantly looking for an excuse to be like, "It's not that good." Yeah, you shoot, you shoot at the king, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, but Shawshank is good. But it is crazy that he has not directed another movie. In and he, years. so he he was uh, Stephen King's guy for a bit, and he um, he made the adaptations of Stephen King works that Stephen King would be very vocal about. Like he fixed my story. He did things I didn't think about, and he like he came in from like a true outsider's perspective. And adapted what I wanted to do, and every change that he made, he was like, "Hey, this is this is good. This is good." He did that with uh, Shawshank Redemption as well. He both in Shawshank Redemption and in this, he cast a central character as black and added so much complexity to both Shawshank yeah. and The Mist. Uh, and yeah. Green Mile is one of those movies that's like, yes, it's racially condescending in a lot of ways. Like, yes, it's like overly long and like sentimental in the wrong kind of way. But like, it's expertly mounted. It's gorgeous to look yeah. at. And I challenge you not to cry if you're watching it like directly. Like, you might think it's, it's but like, you might think it's like a kind of I don't, movie, I don't, th- like, I don't think it's, I don't think it's a bad movie. It just was weird that like, like you shouldn't make a, I mean, it's essentially he's doing another version of Shawshank, right? Like, so it's, it's unfortunately one of those movies where I feel like, oh, well, I guess I'd rather just watch Shawshank. Like, it's not as long and is better at all the things it does in every way. So, like, it's not a bad movie. It's just like, yeah. But it I does speak to how good of a director he is that even when the script he's very is kind of the script in the original story is kind of racially condescending, he still like found power in it, and he got per, he got actors to give performances that are just lovely. Did um, you did you see the majestic? Though I remember seeing that in theaters. I was pumped. Frank Darabont, Jim Carrey, post Truman Show, and Man on the Moon. It's the worst movie. I haven't seen it's it. So no. bad. Because everyone has told me, like, no, this isn't some hidden gem. Like, no, it's one of those no. movies where I, I just need, I need, like, one or two people to be like, you love this, uh, before I'm, I'm putting the time in. It, well, it's it, I mean, horror it, movies. Like, I'll watch garbage horror movies, but I at least need, like, one person I really respect person. to be like, eh, check it out. It was a movie, I, was, I mean, for so many reasons, like, Frank Darabout, Jim Carrey, like, when Jim Carrey was like, oh, interesting, where he's with his career. And, like, I still remember interviews with him at the time. Where he was talking about – because it was like post 9-11. So like – and it came out December, like holiday season because I thought it was going to be huge and it was like a huge bomb. But I still remember like some interview I was watching my freshman year in college dorm where he's talking about they wanted to make a movie in the style of Frank Capra. And I've talked about It's a Wonderful Life. So I was super excited. But there's like this interview that I can still picture in my mind that you'd probably never be able to find. But he's just – he's doing his like Jim Carrey mugging a little bit in the interview. And he's like, I just felt like – I gotta put something good out there. It's like, 
you made the movie before 9-11, you fucking idiots. <laughs> like, it's releasing in September. You weren't like, oh, shit. Quick, let's get a Fright Camera movie. <laughs> we gotta release it to theater in two months. Anyways, yeah. I need to I need to exercise that little moment that has been in my head for way too long. Yeah, he's uh it's pretty pretty fucking cynical, dude. Um Oh, dead kid. So yeah, we we jumped over this, but like, yeah, I wanted to ask what you thought about this as a father. Do you think that killing the kid and, and you said this affected you. Do you think that killing the kid goes over some sort of line or is detrimental to the political point it's making like should the kid have survived and all the rest of the well, car died or something like is there something no I, well I, I i think it actually underlines the political point in that he is not good <laughs> because like 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 yeah because like there is i mean again this is such a hard thing to like do i want my kid torn apart by monsters or on the like i get like i get a little bit of that that's a common trope of like let's end suffering before the zombies come you know whatever else it is right but the flip side of that is that i feel like he's kind of shown to be a like at what point he's constantly putting himself in danger he constantly seems like he doesn't really care that much about his kid right like and I'm just speaking as a as a father every or a parent. Everyone is different. Then there's good and bad ones. But like, I can't imagine a circumstance where if I was in that situation, because like literally the kid is like my daughter's age. I think she's supposed to be five in the book. He seems a little older in the movie. Um, but like, I can't imagine a circumstance where I'm not just like literally there with her the entire time. <laughs> like you know, like I can't imagine that. Like, hey. My 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 daughter, just stay here for a little bit. I'm gonna go check out the generator a little bit. And she, like the kid in the movie and the book, would be like, "Uh, please don't leave me." And the idea that I would go, "Yeah, I'm gonna go check out the generator quick," uh, just seems so foreign to me. Like in that circumstance, so like he's kind of been shown, in my opinion, to kind of be like a not an absentee because he's not like obviously has a good relationship with his kid, but like. I don't know the right word. It's like someone who doesn't really think about his kids' needs in any sort of way, which also fits with, like, everything else that he does. Like, he is not thinking about how he can help everyone in the store. Like, in the moment, he's only thinking about himself. And when the things he likes are threatened, he acts. But he actually doesn't, like, create a safe space for his child, even in, in uh, you know, terrifying situations. That's an interesting thing because when I was watching it, and I don't have children, um, when I was watching it, I was thinking David is actually he's serving his kids' survival and well-being in a sense that, like, yeah, he can't be there to be give emotional comfort. And he's basically just exporting that to people who don't have anything else to do, which let's that's kind of a finicky way to talk about it but like people that are don't have an action that they think will be helpful they think that the action that they can do to be helpful is to comfort a small boy um and there's basically two characters that fulfill that role one is like his old babysitter or something who commits suicide um no uh no no she doesn't she gets uh stung by the bug i thought she drops a pill bottle no no the babysitter because i remember when he walks into the store she's like hey we're looking for a sitter on Sunday night. She's the girlfriend or like wannabe girlfriend or not wannabe, but like will there or won't they? Ne- they never did. And now there's an uh, emergency with the They move who guy. the characters are around. Okay, so I meant the there's an older woman that watches him, which in the book 
Um, the older woman that watches him commit suicide, Kill. and the older Correct. woman that commits suicide in this is yeah, not necessarily the babysitter. They like move Correct. girls around. Yeah. Um, which they they do that to create more characterization for the bag check girl. I forget her name. Um, yeah, and they also but, they also at the same time create a military figure to have this sort of like uh, love that never could have been, and in um, Sam Witwer's character, and and also gives him a reason to finally give up the secrets because his uh, his friends that commit suicide, and now that like the girl that like he has always wanted to ask out on a date, like her neck fucking exploded from a bad reaction to a yeah. fight. He has nothing else to live for, yeah. basically. Okay, so um, jumping back to that, he, he there's people that are willing to take on, including um, Lori, who keep taking on these responsibilities of, of watching the kid. And when I was watching it, I was like, well, it's a little, you know, gender normative, but these women don't know these they don't have another job around they don't see any other role for themselves so they're like hell i'll comfort david's off doing action i'll comfort his kid like i don't know what else to do and then when the moment of action happens like they find other things to do right like laurie throws a fucking can at mrs carmody's head um or no she she tries to calm mrs carmody down and then uh, a different character throws a can at mrs carmody's head it's they they kind of mix up who does what um for for to give everybody a little bit more space. But my point is that basically I was watching this and I was like, well, they're doing the thing where David is trying to be a man of action, whether that's those actions are correct or true or whatever. He's like, it serves my child better for me to be working on a broader scale than to be focusing on like his, his immediate comfort. And I, I'm not a parent though. So I don't know. Well, so I guess part of it too is like, um, so I think you could ask the question, so what does he accomplish? And I would say nothing throughout the entirety of the movie. Like, Oh, what yeah. Good, oh, I, what, I agree entirely. So, so, and also, like, so... He's doing what the guys were doing. He's, like, he's he's curing his anxiety by going off on stupid missions. Like, going to the drugstore, like, yeah, there's a mission behind that, but they lose, like, six people to save one yeah. who they can't even save. And the whole idea is to, yeah, like, so it's it's... He's not an expert in any of these things. He's, like, just going to go check it out. So, like, again, it's that kind of, like, he's taking action, but it's actually the action he should be. Like, sure, if he was, like, a master electrician, it was like, look, I I am self-aware enough to know where my strengths and my weaknesses lie. And as such, I know that I can get this generator up and going. And so it makes sense for me to... For a second or whatever, leave my kid who actually needs me, whereas like some something that I can actually add some level of value to and go do this chore for a second. Because, again, the group as a whole needs my knowledge or me- mechanical skill or whatever else it is. Instead, he's like, I've got a board sitting here. I'd like to do some. I'm going to go dick around. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I don't really have any ideas. I don't have any special knowledge. But he's not aware of that. Instead, he keeps believing himself to be the protagonist of an action horror movie and makes incredibly wrong decisions while actually being kind of a fucking coward the whole time. So, I, yeah, I, t- I, t- I, re- I wrote my notes doing what needs to be done and masculinity that um, – that the, the very often the men in this movie think like if I do something I'm helping, which is not necessarily well, well, true. And look, and look and look at his action. Yeah, exactly. And look, well, and the type of the type of like action that the store needed from him or anyone else was like moral courage and like 
some um, some integrity to be like, hey, don't kill this kid and don't do this instead of letting like fascism rise slowly but consistently to the point that then they're like, well, abandoned ship. And then, of course, like even his action killing his son is like a fucking, well, the only way to pro- solve this problem right now that I can't think of my way out of is that with a gun. Like, you know, it's it's so I just I at no point to the movie do I think he's the concept of like good and bad parent is um is such a like a nebulous concept there's there's i some days i'm a better parent than i am other days like that's just how it works but at the end and of you the hope day that you're a good parent on the days when a fucking like the true challenges come like no well, none of us will ever probably hopefully be in the missed situation but like you hope that you're your best self when like it really matters well, but I think the more important point isn't whether he's a good father or a bad father. The point is that at no point in the movie did we see him take his son's uh, safety, comfort, like uh, the, like a recognition that this was someone that he was responsible for and was presumably loved and did not want to see harm come from. At no point does any like semblance of any of those kind of things affect his behavior. Like, he's constantly here, you take him, I'm going to go do action stuff. Like, there's not a point where he sits and considers how he can make his kid uh, feel safer, feel more secure. If anything, he probably only adds to that. So, of course, like, as we get back to that ending scene again, of course he's not taking into account whether, like, I'm not saying it wasn't hard for him to shoot his son, but... All he's 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 just thinking of, like you said, I got to do what's got to be done, whether that's got to be done actually creates any sort of positive impact. Like he just needs to take some action. He The action stopped. The car paused. And instead of like doing anything, he, like, he doesn't even fucking hug his kid. Yeah, <laughs> like, I think, he, I mean, I think like, he like can't. I think he knows that'll make it harder. It's like the same reason he like doesn't try and i think he doesn't try and think about the action of of uh you know mass suicide uh death true, but suicide like, much but he in, doesn't like, the know pragmatics of it he's just like uh well i need i need to perform this fucking action right now i don't know man like uh <laughs> i'm not saying it's a good thing i'm saying i'm saying he's not thinking of i'm saying he's not th- he's not thinking about that because he's just go 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 this is men make decisions men do actions yeah so i mean like if you think like you're going to kill yourself five seconds later, like it'd be one thing if he thought he was like, I'm killing him to protect him. And, but he didn't know he only had four bullets left, right? Yeah, he did. He counted. Oh, okay. They, he held them out in his hand and he ran. Oh, around. that's right. Kid, that's right. And there's also a, a very like long shot of the kid being like fully asleep. So like you, you can presume he went like front seat, back seat. <laughs> yeah. But like, oh man. Yeah. It's uh like I don't know like again he he's doing all these actions that are counterproductive hurt people and stuff like that and at no point does so it's it is one of those things where I don't I just don't see him as a good kid. like and I don't think the movie does either I, I, like I, I think the movie is saying that David is is bad in a different way but still like this is this is us talking for two and a half hours i don't need to describe it anymore i just think he is also like a different sort of evil like a more subtle evil in the world uh taking action without thinking of consequences just trying to do stuff to present himself as like a masculine or a problem solver and then when he actually needs to show any semblance of courage he 
just ignores it. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a fair interpretation of the character, and I think it actually argues well for Thomas Jane's casting. I've seen some people argue against him because I think they unfairly knock him down as an actor. Give me and, their names. And they're like, why'd you why'd you make him uh why'd you make him an action star as the lead? And I was like, that actually adds to it. You seeing David as a man of action allows you to reach this ending where you're like Oh, exactly. Da- David was go, go, go. What were all the go moments? What was his, what was his yeah. last decision? Because by the end of the movie you're like, well, th- now they have to leave because their other option is murder all the cultists like there's no there's no way they're making it but like if they had made, well, actually i think that that'd be the time they at least had to leave because maybe uh while all these people are looking for a leader they could have stepped up and like changed the situation instead of like well good luck fuckers yeah that's true one, one of those other people is just gonna like that's how it works if someone doesn't challenge that type of evil someone else is gonna take that place and they like well we took down the evil we're still leaving. Yeah. Like, I just think it's more likely that one of the cultists will fill the will fill the vacuum than them. I, I, I yeah. Because it's a complete vacuum because all the people that could have shown moral courage uh, left. I would also say, it, like, but when you do think about it, it has, like, the, the Raiders of the Lost Ark joke, right? Like, what did Indy ultimately do? <laughs> like, everything would have, like... Everyone would have still died. Yeah, and that's why I, th- I think all of our interpretations of the ending, all of the, nu- the numerous ones, end up with a simple fact. David follows a dummy masculinity to its um, to an, uh, an obvious end point. And he keeps yeah. making decisions for people. And people look to him and say, well, he's a man of action. Why wouldn't we trust him? Which is like a very easy pit to fall in, which in the same sense is Mrs. Carmody, who and I'm not both sizing the specific situation, but I'm saying like in the same sense, the mo- it's just showing the, the themes of the movie. Mrs. Carmody was willing to give them a truth and actions. They were, she was willing to say, here's why this is happening. Here's what we got to do. David said, I don't know why this is happening, but here's what we got to do, <laughs> which is in its own way. He said he says, I don't know what is happening. It's definitely not that bullshit over there. And then you're like, I'm on your team. And he said, here's what we're going to do. And then you follow his actions all the way down to the fucking bottom as everyone else in the movie does. And then you hit the bottom and you're like, shit. Um, <laughs> well, and also like to be Seems fair, like a series of bad decisions, I guess, now that I look back on all of it. And, and watching the whole pack of their friends get torn apart and when they're trying to get to the truck and everyone yeah. kind of get dispersed, like it, it really helps. The fact that they don't get the truck unscathed really helps nail down like outside this truck is death. You will lose 20% of you just 20 to 50% of you just trying to get. 10 feet out of the door which they which they know because they they've they've seen it's why it was like their last resort when they didn't need one but like again not to not to put this home like you're right it's not both sizing but i think what is i think there is a third side that's better that's not really present in the movie but like if you like look at this like political parties you have like outright evil and spineless enablers (laughs) like i i don't know it feels really clear-cut I compl- I completely agree. So let's start. Let's talk about let's talk about some other stuff that happens in the movie. Um, I think losing Toby Jones really hurts. I love Toby Jones. I know you so do good. too. I want to talk about something that we're never going to get a chance to talk about, which is that Toby Jones got screwed twice. Toby Jones was uh, cast as uh, Truman Capote mm-hmm. in a drama called Infamous that no one has seen. I believe Sandra Bullock is his co lead. Uh, no one has seen it. 
Uh, do you know what came out? Like, I don't know, three, four, six months later. Oh, yeah. Capote. Yeah. So you got fucked yeah. there. You just got. Of course. The- you're like, you're, you're wondering if I know the movie Capote and you're assuming, of course, I know the movie Infamous. Yeah. And then. Um, <laughs> they get that backwards. But. And then uh, Al- Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, yeah. He he was in a HBO movie called uh, like the girl the girl and the birds or something I don't know. Um, That's definitely what it's called. Yep, look it up on IMDb. Everyone, the girl and the birds. It's about a girl and she's in the movie The Birds, so that's the name of the movie. And then uh, <laughs> that movie wasn't very good, but everyone gave a lot of credit to Anthony Hopkins playing Alfred Hitchcock, and he was terrible in it. And that movie sucks ass in the movie Hitchcock. Toby Jones again got buried like people were at least like oh my god Alfred Hitchcock is back to doing like playing fun characters again I will say I forgot that movie existed till you just told me about the the Hitchcock one but like, nobody talked about the HBO one so it's, it's crazy so yeah like to, I love Toby maybe Jones. he's maybe maybe Toby Jones should look for people that aren't like bald weirdos to play <laughs> I mean he's pretty much typecast oh, there's also Barbarian Sound Studio which is like an amazing movie and that movie is only castable for toby jones like yeah it needs to be yeah. a weirdo who's like n- like kind of out of it yeah uh can we talk about the spider nest moment uh spider nest is good it's their riff on alien dash aliens it also that's yep. the scene when you realize the diversity of the monsters and it really helps nail down that this is frank darabont's the thing because it's yep. not it, it is a monster it's this amazing lovecraftian monster movie where where greg nicotero um got to to got to get his 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 uh, rick baker moment his is is the thing moment where he got to really show off all of his stuff uh rob Bottin also worked on the thing obviously he's the main main creative guy i didn't want to lose that there but um yeah that that scene is is really fun it's really gross like it and it really hits this 1950s monster movie thing which the black and white filmmaking i think really helps, helps yeah. Uh, yeah exaggerate yeah, so much like the the monsters are used very sparingly, like, and you don't get a sense of the whole um, ecosystem. Uh, and actually, that's why I actually think the giant weird, like the giant weird tentacled Cthulhu beast, is so important to making the monsters as a whole work. I think actually that props up everything else. Not because I think the tentacle teeth or the spiders. Or the bugs or the bird uh, pterodactyl things are, like, not compelling. But I think, like Lovecraft gives you, like, these little tastes of things, I think the giant monster at the end actually finally gives you a sense of, oh, this whole thing is weirder and bigger than I ever imagined. And then it lets your imagination fill in all the gaps of, like... um, all the other creatures that could exist that you just didn't see in this particular store that were fighting these more like uh, these these creatures that had a more more obvious analog to like a, an earth creature. And like I think without that moment, I think the rest of it would seem like a little more benign. Oh, that and the weird like crab thing that grabs stuff out of the mist. Like those two like bigger creatures that we see glimpses of quickly, I think are very important to selling the ecology and the horror. And again, very Lovecraftian. Like I'm going to say it's essentially undescribable. I'm not going to give you a full picture. I'm going to name some things it reminds me of. And it's going to be five disparate things that you have to put together in your mind. Like 
that's very Lovecraft. Hinting at this larger ecosystem, this larger, larger system, and that not all of them you can shoot with a gun or stab with a piece of bar uh, really helps show how much bigger this is to them. And it also yeah. helps nail that, that ending, that feeling of hopelessness that like, if this mist just keeps on going, this world is unlivable. Like there's no... Yeah. There's no way for them to just carry on. Like, there's no moving on from this if this mist is just how things are now. Um, yep. Um, yeah, I think that the attack on the super the store where the bugs come in the glass and they have their own stingers, but also these like crane, these four winged crane kind of bats. Um, He's like bat pterodactyl. Yeah, they're so they're so cool. Yeah, and and the fact that Frank uh, that Greg Nicotero mixes between CGI and real models really helps sell that. Yeah, same with like the bug, the bites and stuff like that are really good. Like it's the the monster design is all good. I just think that if it was just bugs and just pterodactyls and just like a quick tentacle that we don't see the whole thing, I think it would have felt less uh, cosmically terrifying. So those glimpses of bigger monsters in the mist are extremely important to selling the idea that we've we've literally let a unknowable or previously unknowable world into ours. And like we can't even reckon with what kind of creatures are in the mist because, you know, bugs are cool, but like I can reckon with bigger bugs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something where, like, when, when the guy offers to go get his shotgun, I was like, that'd probably help with the bug things. Yeah. Um, but again... Spiders, too. Like, it's cool that they have, like, they're scarier spiders, they're bigger spiders, but, like, again, it's like, you can shoot them. Yeah. I love Can't shoot cool. Tentacle Boy. Can't shoot... Oh, yeah. Good luck with that. It'll just bounce right off him. He's got he's got a million tentacles. Yeah, he just, like, whaps them all. Boom, 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 boom. You get the sense that they chopped off one tentacle, and then, like, that thing's just gonna be fine. I think you could probably, I mean, just judging by the look of it, I could probably chop off a good 800. Yeah. It's going to be fine. You won't even notice. Like a, It's like a trim. It's like cutting off a hair. In, in fact, he'll thank you because now he can move faster. He has less weight. Yeah. Uh, so I actually like, uh, I actually got through most of my notes and also, Peter, this is your edit and this is getting really long because I, I really do love this movie. Um, I'm glad, like we, I think we, both Peter and I have been wanting to talk about it for a while. This makes a lot of sense. This is... You know, a really I think it's the I think it's the best movie we're going to do in this couple months. Uh, and I say that as someone who who loves who also thinks of reanimators of five star movie. I just think like the way this makes me feel and leaves me thinking just is on some level like a little bit more. And I hate saying this because this is going to sound dumb, but know that please interpret this as me being very tired. But like it's a little more it feels more important. <laughs> The reanimator in a way. Yeah. Uh, and I I don't mean to say that kind of saying to reanimator because I think it's one of the best, you know, 80s horror comedies out there. Um, but it just is – it's so good. And I really think watching it, you know, for the last couple times and kind of realizing what David was helped me understand the ending a little more that it was trying to shake me awake to let me know that David – was also part of the problem and uh it took me a lot of viewings to kind of get that but i i do think i've kind of cracked the movie and it you know it's always the sign of a good movie where you like are like this is an amazing movie this is a five-star movie and then 10 years later you're like oh shit i think i get it the modern context helps that as well i think that the fact that we're watching it in a time where we're used to questioning how 
we're questioning the veracity and the power of of our male straight characters is like at an all time high. And I know it's something that like uh, smarter people that aren't straight white says men have been doing for forever. But um, we're at a time where now we're asked to 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 kind of contend with what masculinity means, particularly in a violent context and and, and yada yada, and especially in a movie that's so political, right? Yep. Um, so my final thoughts are that this movie very much fits in with a Dawn of the Dead uh, style 1970s like social critique or social yep. drama. And um, yes, it's like styled after a 1950s monster movie, especially with the black and white. And I love the style of it, but like it's it's positioned more almost as like a 1970s style Dawn of the Dead movie or like an invasion of the body snatchers from multiple eras where it's not – it's very obvious from the opening that it's not just a kooky monster movie, that you're going to get awesome special effects and great monster attacks and stuff. Like, this is a movie that when it's over, you might feel a little icky and you might have to be like, wait, why do I feel this way? They got away. Or why do I feel this way? They, you know, they, it's, it's a horror movie or, um, you know, in horror movies, people die. Like, why do I feel worse than I did watching a slasher movie? And it's, it, yes, obviously, it's because the movie is it's awesomely mounted and it was mounted by a guy who was interested in characters over gore. And um, but also because it's it's a social thriller with these complicated moving parts and fractional violence and people splitting off into groups. And we didn't really talk about the fact that, like, this movie begins with a group um, of people led by Andre Brower, who is the captain on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, Nine-Nine! Nine-Nine! And he is a serious, really like, straight-ahead dude. And yeah. this shows you how, how good of an a, a uh, how good of a, a director, how smart of a director um, Frank Darabont is because he took what in the book was just, like, this sort of scumbag, scumbag dude that Stephen King likes to write. Like, Stephen King likes to be like, hey, a lot of men are douchebags so i'm gonna throw a lot of douchebag men into my men into my story and make it very clear that i don't like them which is fine but uh he makes him so much more interesting in the book by making him this guy who's like fundamentally not that bad of a guy but he's like but he's he's got a history with david and david's not particularly handling the communication well and there's this awesome moment where andre brower says you don't like you people don't like out-of-towners, do you? And he he's clearly means, like, I'm a black guy with money from New York. Like, which part of, the, yeah. which part of that offends you the most? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Well, and I also think it's just so much in, – it's more interesting than – I really think, like, you mentioned that Darabout was doing this for Stephen King. Like, Darabout should really take a pass through all of his books and maybe clean up some of the stuff because, like, uh, even though I really like Stephen King, like, he's – like there's parts about his books that are always like eye rolly to me, but like yeah, they make him in the book like kind of a a bigger asshole who gets angry and like flips out at David. He's also leering at David's wife. Like it's all these things that like it doesn't give his character nuance. And having this guy who yeah, they had a fight, they're neighbors who disagree. He seemed like it seems like those two are gonna be buds and like get through this together. They'll figure and it that, out. They'll figure it out and they they have an understanding and they're going to this – and that part where he's just like, no, I'm sorry. Like, I don't believe you. He's part of the problem too. But – and he takes a stance that is also – we never find out what happened to him specifically, although other people in this party very gruesomely die. Um, but I, I do think um, – uh, and if I'm really going to get in my ass about this, like – I also think he represents like how un- the whole the whole movie because you've seen the monsters and he hasn't 
like there is that part of you that's like no i know the monsters are there like i want to be proven right like i want him to see the monsters and go i want to see this guy's reaction to holy shit you were right there's the monsters and you don't get to see that in the movie because he goes out you never hear him again you don't even hear him scream you don't see him die and i think a lot of people spend their life trying to like get the people that are wrong to admit they're wrong and uh and like getting a level of satisfaction from that and watching the movie you have that feeling um and uh but you don't get it like he's not he's gone you don't get to see him go holy shit i'm so sorry you were right yeah and that actually helps make the movie a little bit more complicated because it's not about David slowly convincing a group of, of people that he's this smart guy. It's that there's a bunch of rational people that listen to David because he's just one of the rational people. But how rational is David's actions? And I just love this as a social drama. And I, I'd like to I'd like to kind of leave it at that and let people kind of read through the I'd like people to, to sort of see it from a social drama standpoint yeah. and a social drama that also has like kick ass score effects by Greg Nicotero. Yeah, and also, yeah, like, if you haven't seen a while or you, you were one of the people like me that was, like, good but the ending, watch it again. Like, go watch the black and white version. I, I think Pierre's saying that the, this this is only aged even better, even though it was very much of its time. It's very much of this time, and I actually think it's even more resonant in some ways now than it was in 2007 when it felt very relevant. So, uh, yeah, I would, I would, I would check it out again, even if – it's been a while since you've watched it. Even if you loved it, it's worth watching again. I think you'll get even more out of it. So we'll end there. It's already been a long show. Uh, this feels like a movie. I remember thinking that this, because it was Pierre and myself, that this would be a super goopy, goofy or goopy. <laughs> Maybe we'd get some goop out there. Uh, go- a goofy episode. Or the goop troop. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, like, because then we were punch drunk before recording too and, and saying a bunch of dumb stuff. But this is one of those movies where we probably could talk about for another two hours because it just – there's so much meat on that bone uh, to chew off. So, anyways, uh, yeah, next week we're doing our H.P. Uh, uh, Lovecraft historical double feature. I'm really excited about this one. Uh, we're uh, One of them I've seen. One of them I've been saving specifically knowing that we are going to do this uh, – this theme for about seven or eight months now um, is uh, so we're doing uh, the Call of Cthulhu from 2005 and the Whisperer in the Darkness from I believe 2008. These are movies made uh, in- very independently by the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society that also produces the podcast we referenced on the intro episode. They are shot in the style uh, of when the the original stories were published. So Call of Cthulhu is a 1920s silent movie. And Whisper in the Darkness is like a universal 1930s uh, black and white monster movie. So uh, I really like the I, – I think it's actually probably the best possible adaptation of Call of Cthulhu. Um, maybe not, but it definitely feels like a really good way to go with the story. Uh, and I'm, I, I've heard nothing but good things about the Whisper in the Darkness, so I'm excited for that. Yeah, we're, uh, I was going to say, we've got a lot more fun stuff to get to, and we're going to kind of weave in and out of uh, going to back to the, the Lovecraft sources, but also, like, our goal this month was, our goal this summer was not to just uh, t- read you back Lovecraft stories, it's to it's to see how people have played with it, so I'm yep. very, very excited to see what else we've got. Yeah, this is a fun one. And a little break from Stuart Gordon. Yeah. Uh, just kidding. It's mostly we love too. We love you, Stooby. Uh, anyways, uh, good night. Good night.
Hey folks, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we've got just a few quick announcements for you. There ain't nothing in the rule book that says that we can't do some of our own plugs, baby. If you'd like to talk to us, uh, tell us we're stupid, tell us we're beautiful. The quickest way to get to us is our Facebook group, facebook.com slash we love to watch, or our website, wltwpodcast.com. Leave us a comment. Tell us we're doing a good job. Only tell us we're doing a good job. We're so sensitive. We're sensitive boys. We're soft boys. And uh, if you'd like to help other people, if you enjoy our show and want other people to be able to listen to this fine, fine program that we produce at no cost, we don't get any money for this. You guys have yet to pay us anything. We live and we breathe off of good reviews from iTunes. So if you would please go to iTunes, review our show, give us a positive rating. We would love to get more and more people involved in this show and this community. I know you hear it all the time, but it really does help. And we're also available if you don't use iTunes. We're also available on Google Music, Stitcher, Tune in. We're currently on SoundCloud. We'll take that out if SoundCloud goes away. (laughs) That's it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned, guys, on our Facebook page especially. We're going to have a lot more polls, a lot more prizes, and a lot more uh, interaction with you guys. So keep it tuned in. Uh, Let us know what you guys are thinking. And again, above all else, thanks for listening to We Love to Watch.